Hello and welcome back to Metastation for our recap of episode 512, Damocles, part one. My name is Erin. I'm an English professor in Mississippi. I'm Claire. I'm a writer in Portland, Oregon. I think we're going to start this week in the gorge or wherever it is, in, in the place where um, where one crew marches in and gets ambushed. We were both very, very bummed when we when it turned out that our theory about Cain not having actually double-crossed them is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to that storyline with the Cain stuff later on. The sort of the McCreary problem kind of plot-wise, I think, reared its head in this episode more than it has before. So, like, I guess we're... Yeah. So taking on faith, the premise the show set up for us, which is that somehow... Cain and Dioza gave McCreary everything that he wanted and then hoped that he would do the right thing and were hoped surprised that he, that he would didn't. be a person that he never has been. Right. That he would uh, be like Dioza 2.0 <laughs> when even Dioza should know, like, that's not how anything works. So, so leaving aside the fact that in this particular submission, I'm just like, I'm sorry, Jason, I feel like my idea was better. <laughs> I think it could all could have worked the same and it would have been more interesting. If they tried and failed, they could yeah. still have ended up ambushed in the in the gorge, but at least we would have seen, you know, Kane not selling down the river like 300 of the last remaining people. On, but anyway, we'll talk about more about when we get to then. I get more and more worried about their genetic bottleneck, but <laughs> yeah, yes, an issue for another season. Um, but anyway, anyway, that's a preview of gripes to come. For now, let's yeah. talk about a storyline that we had the fewest uh, major issues with. Yes, a storyline um, that largely, I think, worked worked certainly worked emotionally and yes. and mm-hmm. largely worked plot wise. Hmm. I, yes, I would say, indeed. yeah, hmm. I would I would agree with that. And actually, like the the Bellamy Gaia Indra stuff in this episode, I thought was solid gold. Yes. Um, and and actually, like most of the Bellamy the Bellamy Octavia stuff too. I think I appreciated that Bellamy and Gaia and Indra were allowed to stay mad at Octavia. You know, yes. that, like even in this hmm. moment of kind of like this, even in this sort of extreme moment where they're all facing death and like are kind of relying on each other to survive that that even in this kind of like a literal on a literal battleground that what was really happening in the story here was that all of the sort of chickens were coming home to roost for Octavia and that's like you know and that's that's her strategic failures on the one side you know so like the fact she's she's sort of living out the consequences of the fact that she led them to this point where they can't go forward and they can't go back. And she's the reason why they can't go back. But then also that, you know, that there's a kind of, there's a kind of like nice parallelism there between like what's happening in the plot is that they are sort of stuck in this position because of, um, the, you know, the choices that Octavia has made to lead them here and to give them no place to go if it didn't work. And sort of the emotional or character arc that's happening is that, Octavia is also sort of trapped in this, like, there's nowhere to go forward with, you know, with Gaia and Indra and Bellamy because they're all, they, you know, they, they're they like angry and they and they are at a point where they're like, we can't forgive you for what you've done. And there's no going back, you know, like that what she's done is done and there's no sort of like taking it back now and that she kind of like 
she sort of like pinned down both, you know, literally and emotionally. And I thought, I thought that was like actually very well executed. Yeah. And I, and I like that we also watch the walls close in on her kind of over the course of the episode. Like we, like at the beginning, in that scene where they're just like, where they're sort of playing dead to avoid getting shot, which had, which had one of my two favorite lines of the entire episode, which is Bellamy going, we are not doing this now. <laughs> like, peak big brother. <laughs> I was like, I know I shouldn't be laughing, but like that, like, like the, the combination of like just like all those heightened emotions, but also that like, sibling exasperation i was like yeah, god you are yeah. so valid bellamy <laughs> so i really enjoyed i think like the arc that octavia goes through from the beginning of this episode to the end what i think works about it is is that we get to watch every single remaining like scrap of blood reina armor fall off piece by piece like at first like she wants to keep doing her stupid fucking reckless charge into danger thing and, you know, no matter how many times Bellamy, like, pulls her down and they watch somebody else, you know, either run to her and get shot or try to surrender and get shot. Like, it takes, it takes, like, six new corpses before she finally realizes her battle strategy is, like, it, it's done, girl. Like, it's over. Like, you have to do what Bellamy's telling you to do. You are no longer in charge. Your idea is stupid and you will die. And so you have, so she has to, for the first time in how, who knows how long, she has to defer to somebody else who had the better idea. And she has no choice but to like, you know, comply or get shot. And so like the first kind of, you know, thing that, that falls apart is her having to sort of like extremely grudgingly, you can sense her resentment, follow Bellamy's play because hers is usually, and then she keeps trying to like, you know, do it her way, do it her way. And then keeps being shown over and over again that like, you know, her way is like dumb and suicidal and short sighted and clueless. And, you know, like the, the moment, like in the shouting where like Brell is like everyone fall back and Octavia is like, no, like forward is the only way forward. It's the only way. It's like, so we watch like the kind of like dying gasp of blood Raina, you know, like she mm-hmm. can't, yeah, she can't give up. She can't let this go. She can't yield. And then watching that get dismantled until she sort of realizes that like, until she has to actually confront the fact that. All along, there were other options, there were better options, there were less violent options. People came to her with suggestions that she dismissed. People tried to help her and she didn't let them. People have been telling her over and over again, like, this is where it's going to end up if you keep going down this road. And she was like, nope, 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 nope. You know, (laughs) to the point of like throwing these three people into the pit because she was that far gone. She was willing to kill her own brother. So the thing that I've been waiting for, you know, I've been going back and forth kind of all season of like, like, is Octavia going to die? Like, is there a way out of this for her? Like, she's so bleak and she's so far down this rabbit hole of crazy that like, I don't know, like maybe people aren't redeemable after a certain point. Like, who knows? You know, like, is it possible to kind of like break her down enough to build something back up that is different and better? And I... And I felt like this episode gave me the thing that I really wanted, which was like you said, it was like, it was like viscerally satisfying to me to hear all three of those people say to her face and have her have to sit there and take it and watch her 
watch her understand that they are right to say like, you did this. Like one crew did not do this. You Octavia did this. You blood rain. Like all of this is on you. And other people were complicit. Other people like, like we all helped you. Like we all, you know, Indra and Gaia helped get her there too. But like they didn't, they weren't like driving the ship. Like she yeah. made this happen. And this and this end game, you know, they tried to they tried to stop it. You know, yeah, she started kind of going over the line. They saw it and they did try to step in and they tried to persuade her exactly. And they tried yeah. to sort of like force her and it didn't work. And so you know, ultimately, where they are now is on Octavia and Octavia alone. Exactly. And, like, I, and it was really it was very satisfying. You know, like I think that in that first instinct when she's when she's pinned down with Bellamy. To say like this is your fault, I think like that in, that initial that initial sort of um, she still kind of had that instinct to try to push it away. So like this is on you, this is on you, and I it was it was viscerally satisfying to watch everybody around her kind of say like nope, not this time. You are not making this someone else's fault. You know this is this is on you. This is your fault. And you know and and to kind of like watch that slow everything slowly break down. So like at first she's like. She wants to keep up her plan. And then she's like, if we just keep going. And then, you know, and Bellamy having to kind of say, no one is going to follow you. Oh, yeah. Like, mm. they like they will not. You can get up and do that. But you, no, they aren't going to follow Blood Reina anymore. Like, that yeah. is done. It's over. Yeah. Um, you don't have an army. Yeah, you don't have an army. Like, they, <laughs> they've, there is no one crew anymore. I mean, that moment is sort of like, one crew is broken and and Octavia like realizing you know it's broken and I broke it I think yeah and uh, Indra saying yes you did which was like yeah yes. yeah yeah no I mean like I think and it, and it was really I think it was so important that it was you know it was Indra and Bellamy who are the only two characters I think that through this season that Octavia still loved and it's like it was really you know the kind of like emotional weight of the those scenes with the three of them sort of hunkered down. And I was so scared for Gaia through all of those. I was oh my god, saying like no, 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 no. I can't, I can't watch Gaia bleed to death in her mother's arms. Like this is not okay. This is not okay. But the sort of emotional complexity of like, you know, you have Octavia with the two, the only two people in the world, like literally, that she still loves, which is her brother and Indra, and sort of like watching her have to sort of confront and and cope with the fact that that she has finally broken their love for her. Like, even if they still love her, you know, like that she has broken those relationships that they are, that they are done with her. And then sort of watching on the one hand with Bellamy, I think, you know, she had, she had always counted on him loving her and loving her the most, you know, like that was the thing that she, that was like always the constant in her life, you know, was just like, there's always Bellamy, like Bellamy loves me no matter what, like there's, there's always Bellamy. And so to kind of like the one, two punch of like, of seeing Bellamy turn away from her, of, of seeing like, she'd actually reached a point where, where even, you know, Bellamy will never, I, I think Bellamy will never stop loving her, but Bellamy got to a point where he's like, you aren't my priority, you know, right. like you broke this. I can't save you. I won't save you. I don't want to save you. And then Indra, I think, who she looked at as, you know, like a mentor and a mother who sort of, I think it was interesting watching for, to have Octavia there watching Indra with Gaia. You know what I mean? This sort of like, yeah. of like she loves Indra, but like, but Indra loves her own daughter more, you know? And when push comes to shove, Indra will turn away from Octavia and she will 
put her own daughter first. I just thought that was really sort of like, it, it was very, it was very viscerally satisfying to kind of get, you know, like, and I think like way more satisfying than Octavia dying. You know, oh, like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's way more satisfying to have Octavia actually have to like look around and go, oh, wow, I holy fuck, yeah, actually hmm. broke everything. Like, I, mm-hmm. I am one crew now. It's just me all yeah. alone. That sort of the, the, the full consequences, repercussions of all of her choices are no one cares about her anymore or, or they don't. They don't care about her enough. You know what I mean? She has broken the, the bonds of love that she did have, even the ones that she didn't think it was possible. And that's sort of, I think it's one of those things where, you know, it's funny because like it, it is, it's it's very tragic, but uh, <laughs> Octavia has become such a villain at this point where I don't really feel bad for her. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> no. It's kind of like. That feels like a fitting end for you. Yes. You know, yes. like, like this feels like poetic justice. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it was deeply satisfying in, in a like, sort of like emote, like, like how, however the kind of the plot resolves of like, you know, Octavia versus one crew. We know that, you know, from the pictures that were released for next week, we know that there's, that they, that they try to come through the gorge again. We've seen her with Maddie and the rest of the army. So we know that, you know, she, she continues on in, in some capacity. Like we know that she's stays part of, of one crew or whatever the sort of like group is. But, but in terms of like, so like the plot resolution, I think is one thing, but the emotional resolution, you know, and we had talked about this a couple of times before about like the idea of perhaps the only thing that could shatter the kind of um mask, you know, armor, whatever, of Blood Reina enough to bring the real Octavia back would be for her to find herself in a place where she's entirely alone and where she has to confront the fact that all of that is because of choices that she made. You know, this isn't, it isn't like the army unfairly abandoned her she led them into danger and the ones who could find a way to survive found a way to survive. So like even she knows that she can't blame Brell and everybody else who retreated from doing exactly what she did, what they did, you know? So it's like, there isn't anyone left to be angry at. She has to sort of begin to see all of these sort of circumstances that ended in like me at this position where I'm, you know, stepping out in front of this bullet and think I'm going to die, you know, I put all of us there. I made that choice, you know, but, but the realization that like, like the, the moment where it really clicks for her that like, no one is coming for you, you know, like what, what the people felt towards Bloodrena isn't love. Like that's not what love looks like, you know, like we've, we've seen, you know, we see in this episode, in multiple different places, you know, what love looks like and the lengths that people will go to for the people that they love to protect them, to save them, you know, sometimes past reason or sanity, you know, but like people will fight for the ones that they love and want to protect them. And, and so that realization that she has that it's like both on like an individual level with her relationships with these, you know, three incredibly important people and kind of collectively that she has broken all of that. You know, she needed the fealty of one crew more than she wanted to be 
loved like a human person. So she made all of these choices over and over and over again that put her in a position where they're obeying her out of fear or out of desperation. You know, she's burning the farm to force them to march into battle, which is a horrific thing to do to people. But that was the choice that she felt like was going to keep her getting to be Blood Reina a little bit longer, you know, getting to be the person who everyone is, you know, terrified to cross, you know. So I think that crumbling of all of those defenses and the realization of the fact that she did all of these things over the course of six years to get her people in in her head, it was like, this is to get my people into the valley. Once we're in the valley, it'll all be okay. And you know, and it, so it really feels like the only just end for all of that is for her to sort of find herself halfway there, stuck under enemy fire, completely abandoned and alone, and having to be the sacrifice instead of having to make everybody else sacrifice themselves yeah. for her. There's a beautiful ironic contrast <laughs> between uh, Shifting Sands, where all of one crew sort of... <laughs> forms a human wall around Blood Reina to protect her from the, the you know, the, the sand slash glass storm versus this episode where even the two people who had loved her the most in the entire world, Indra and Bellamy, when she says, no, I'm, I should be the one to go out there and, you know, draw their fire and sacrifice themselves, sacrifice myself, they both look at her and are like, yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yes. You are, yeah. you are correct. You are the one who uh-huh. should go. You know, that kind of like that, that fall from that fall, f- not just from sort of like power to powerlessness, you know, from having this sort of hold over run crew to losing one crew entirely, but that fall from the kind of like love and care and adoration of people who will put your well being above their own to the point where there is literally no one who will put their well-being above your own. That like everybody, there's not a single person in the world who in the situ- in a situation where you're like, well, I'll be the one to die, will go like, no, 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 you can't do that. Yes, exactly. Like, that is, yeah. that's kind of like a perfect tragic villain arc. You know, that sort of downward trajectory that she lands in here, which I actually, I like, I really, I really like where that landed with her. You know, like I, I like that, that this, this is sort of sort of, final stakes for all the terrible shit that Octavia has done over the Uh course of the season is not death, you know, because death would be a release, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, But rather, like, having to live through the the sort of emotional and physical horrific consequences of her own choice and confront her own, like, confront herself, you know, like, have to kind of look and go, like, I mean, the moment when she says to Bellamy, like, oh, I'll just, just die, is that what you want? And he's like, yes. Like, yeah. that is the absolute nadir for Octavia. Like, that yeah. right there is the moment where it's like, wow. Like, that is the thing that we, none of us ever thought we would say, or ever, ever thought we would see um, Bellamy say. What did you, so how did you, how did you feel like he, he, he meant that in that moment. Like, let's unpack that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, that is a little bit of a weird, of a funny line because, like, he he saves her life several times throughout the episode and, in fact, spends, like, a good chunk of the episode, like, stopping her from doing reckless things that would get her killed. So right. I, I kind of, I don't take it literally, you know, I, I honestly... Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't think it can be literal because, because, again, like, he... 
he saved her over and over and over again. Like, he kept telling her, like, don't do that, you'll get killed. So I think it was more... I read it more like her trying, you know, sort of like doing the challenge, like, what do you want me to die? Expecting him to be like, no, 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 of course, Octavia, I don't want you to, you know, like she was trying to get that response from him, that kind of reassurance. And so I think to me, it reads more as Bellamy being like, I am not, I am not going to give you that reassurance anymore. Yeah. Like you cannot look to me, your big brother to tell you, I love you no matter what, and everything's going to be okay, no matter what. Exactly. Um, Like I, I read it more as him like denying her, that kind of emotional labor. easy comfort yeah. yeah i i i read it i think that that makes a lot of sense to me i sort of read it in in some ways like and i don't know this is you know maybe sort of too overreading but i i sort of wondered like you know does he mean like blood reina versus octavia you know like like do, yeah, do you want too. like like this this version of you like yeah he wants this version of her to die because yeah. this version yeah. of her is like this sort of artificial wall between between the two of them but also between her and like any kind of humanity you know so it's like I could see that too yeah I could see that too and then I could also see it as being a kind of like callback to like <laughs> When she put him in the ring, you know, he's like, look, if you do this, I'm going to die. I'm not going to fight. I'm going to die. Is that what you want? And she basically said, yes. I also see it as uh-huh. him being sort of like, hey, like turnabout is fair play. You right, I mean? right. Like, <laughs> remember last time we had this conversation, only the positions were slightly reversed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So for him to kind of, I, I feel like I read it not as a literal thing, but more as a just kind of as, yeah. a, as a like an emotional slap in the face, you know, just yes. to say like, like, hey. You told me you didn't value my life over everything else. I don't value your life over everything else. Blood rain. Yes, like, exactly. Like, you are now. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, no, I don't want you to live. Yeah. Um, that was kind of how I yeah. felt, too. And I – because I, I liked it. Like, again, like, I found it really satisfying while also not believing that what that really means is that Bellamy is, like, actively choosing for her to die. Like, I think – like, when she sacrifices herself, like, he lets her do it, but – you know, but, but he she, also grabs her like when she gets up to leave, he grabs her and pulls her down, and they have that beautiful silence. See, which just like yeah, which I like. Loved. Bob and Marie was like, I mean, that was amazing. Like so the, good, the, the amount that they were able to say with just their faces there. And I kept waiting for him to like, is he going to say something? Like, is he going to say don't don't go? Are they going to hug? Like, there was all these like ways it could have gone much more sort of overtly sentimental, and it was so spare. And, and I thought it was just, I thought it was so, just so perfect. It was like everything about this felt emotionally correct. And you could see like, you know, when he first pulls her down and looks at her, she's waiting for him to say something. She's waiting for him to say, don't go or I love you or, or something like that. You know, and then he looks down, he looks back up and she realizes that he's not going to say any of those things. He's not going to stop her, but he also can't just let her walk out to her death without having a moment to kind of just like, you know, and I think like it's one of those, I think I sort of read it as like, he's in a place where he can't say to her, I love you. He can't say, I forgive you, but he does still love her. She is, you know what I mean? There's this kind of like silent moment of like, I can't just let you walk away from me forever. But I also, I, I can't say anything, you know, the comp, the, the sort of like, Level of complexity of the feelings that are happening, I think it's very sort of real that they're not articulable, you know, like you can't say them. And so I think, you know, he looks down and she realizes kind of that's what's going on. And so, and, you know, and I, and I did really like that my brother, my responsibility. Yes. Oh, God, that was so around that, that moment of, I mean, because I feel like, you know, 
that's the thing she's always fallen back on is that Bellamy, Bellamy, no matter what, Bellamy will will slice open his own arm to save her. You know, and she told him that story about the lily pads and Bellamy will like sacrifice his body and soul to save Octavia. And that's always been true. And I think like the thing that has changed that she realized that we sort of, that is sort of emblematized through, you know, do you want me to die or whatever is that like, that's what's changed is that Bellamy is like, I'm not going to, I won't do that anymore. You know, like I don't value your life over mine. And, and so I thought, Again, in terms of just sort of like, in terms of like a a catharsis for the Blakes in this season, and I think actually even over the course of all five seasons, getting Octavia to the place where she can understand that, you know, like she, she sees that and she understands it. And she also, and she can sort of reach a point where she's like, I will sacrifice myself for you you know like not for one crew not for whatever like for my brother like i will i will die so that you can live which is the thing that he's kept trying to do over and over again i thought that was like a very i thought that was a a beautiful sort of again like uh catharsis for that for that arc that you know ending for that arc and and anything more you know like him saying like him him at the last minute being like don't go or saying i love you like you said i think it would have cheapened it you know because like because like the what makes it work is that it has to be hard for octavia she has to do this completely kind of like from a place of accepting that she's broken his heart you know she's broken her relationship with him she's responsible for that and now she is going to make the sacrifice for him without an expectation of anything in return, you know? Yes. Yes. Either emotionally or anything else, you know? And that's yeah. kind of what makes it work. And I think, like, you know, one thing we talked about a little bit last week and we were talking about um, before we started recording, um, just in terms of, like, the difference between tragedy and, like, grimdark or just, like, a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like like a, a, like a story where the kind of the the arc of a character or a relationship is downward the whole way, you know, and sort of ends and ends at the sort of at the nadir. What makes that what makes that work in a tragedy, like in a classical tragedy, is that it still has catharsis, you know, like in a comedy in in a, in, a, in a, by comedy, I mean, like in a classical sense where like comedy means something where. It has basically a happy ending where like things fall apart in the middle and then everything kind of returns to kind of cohesion and harmony at the end. Um, you know, the catharsis comes through cohesion and harmony. And in a tragedy, like a tragedy is different. In a tragedy, things fall apart and they don't come back. You know, like you get to the end of the play and instead of everybody being like, yay, we're friends again or getting married or whatever, everybody's dead, right? The, this either, either cohering or not cohering at the very end is what separates comedy from tragedy. But they both have catharsis, you know, like they both have, they both work in a way where like whatever the end is, there is a kind of like ultimate emotional payoff for the audience, a payoff of like emotional and also in terms of meaning. So that whatever happens at the end, um, you know, there's a feeling of sort of like, something larger kind of coming together and paying off. And I think like this, the Blake thing here, I think is a good example of, of like, this is, this is an arc that has been on a downward trajectory almost the entire time. Like certainly the Blakes have been on a downward trajectory since season three, you know, and, and, and Octavia has been too, basically since Lincoln died, you know, Octavia has kind of been on this darker and darker path. 
And this is the absolute bottom point. But the reason why it works as a bottom point for her, I think, and it isn't just a like, it isn't just like a bummer or whatever, is because we get this cathartic moment where like everything is shit, but also at the same time, in the shittiness, something clicks, something changes. Yes. Yeah. Finally, like the, like, Octavia is as bad and as dark and as broken and as isolated as she can get. But in that, like, what that isolation and that brokenness and that darkness and that evilness does is it gets her to the point where she understands it. She can comprehend it. She sees it for what it is and it produces a change in her. And the change is yes. she's going to walk out there and die, right? Like the change right. is she, she accepts that nobody loves her anymore and she's not going to try to like force them to. But there is a payoff to, it's not just like, well, everything sucks and it sucks and that's it. It's like everything sucks and that suckiness has produced fundamental change in these two characters, Octavia and Bellamy. That has sort of propelled them in new directions that are very important. And Octavia's might never bounce back up. Um, but you know, like, but Bellamy, Bellamy's gonna live and he's changed for the better. Like Bellamy has gotten to a point where he does value his own life. And so, so to me, it's like, this is, this is where, okay, if it's a tragedy, this is a tragedy that works because we have catharsis yes. versus kind of how we were feeling last week and through, yeah, you know, some of the season where it's like, Things just getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse isn't really a tragedy. It's just like a bummer. It's just kind of like right. when things keep getting worse and and for no reason or they get worse, but then they just keep circling back to the same old thing. Like you you start at A and then you go downhill to B and then you return to A. It's like, why did we go to B where everything was shitty and then come back to A, which is the same thing, but shittier. You know what I mean? So right. it's like. <laughs> well, um, no, exactly. Yeah. And it gets into all these sort of questions about like the sort of the overarching meta narrative of the entire series of the show as kind of evidenced by the stories inside that of these individual characters and relationships and plots and season to season. And I think that, you know, the, the place of, of kind of bleak discouragement that I was in last week was, <laughs> was sort of bumming up against that fear of is the show's meta narrative that Nothing will ever get better. That that anytime we build something, we're going to immediately destroy it. That anytime we have a group of people that we think is going to like band together, maybe there'll be peace. A new enemy shows up. Um, that anytime steps are taken to creating some kind of a better world, somebody lights it on fire. You know, like or even just relationships. Anytime, yeah, it's just like two people are going to heal and come back together, right? Or like bond or whatever, they just get fractured again. Exactly, and and without any kind of counterbalance of like you know relationships are like fractured here but built over here or we destroy this thing but we build something new you know so so i think for me some of my frustrations after the last episode had a lot to do with feeling like while while understanding that the structure of the show is very much in terms of the finales that it is like always sort of darkest before the dawn and it's always like the 11th and 12th episode where you're, everything is like oh my god everything's going to shit <laughs> and then the finale yeah. usually has an element of some kind of a lift to it and some kind of a resolution but i you know I, I think i was starting to feel like in a in a world that is as bleak and fucked up as the real world in which we live how much of our lives and time do we want to like you know commit to consuming media that like if the meta narrative of this show is like anytime we sort of we create hope or we build something constructive or or we leave something on a positive note or or there is like love or harmony that either it becomes 
distorted or it is broken or it's burned down so that we can sort of go off to our next excitingly bleak adventure. And part of me was just sort of like, I don't know how much more of that I personally have in me. But I will say (laughs) that the way that I felt after this episode in comparison to that was completely different because I felt like there were there were several key areas, I would say, sort of particularly in in Octavia and Clark and Abby, you know, and the, and in various different ways, and they worked with varying degrees of success. But I think for all three of them, as well as for a number of other characters, like, there was a click that had to happen, like a permanent pivot to a new, better way of being that resolves the or, – or begins to sort of like the first step towards – um, a new path walking away from the thing that made it really hard to watch their darkness and suffering this season, you know, that isn't, which is, which yeah. is different from like a tidy sort of, you know, resolution. But I think for Octavia, she had to be broken down to a point of realizing Blood Reina was only ever a thing that belonged to her, you know, like that her perception of the kind of ruler she was as that there was this sort of like, you know, there was some kind of benevolence in the violence that she was doing to these people because she was doing it for them. She was doing it to help them survive. She was doing it to keep everybody together. This is for unity. Like, you'll all see. You'll all see. We'll get to the <laughs> Holy Land. And then you'll believe me, you know. And it's just like, bitch, no. Like, that's not how anything works, you know. And yeah. so I think I mean, I think there's like, there's a certain element of like, you know, Moses led the his people to the Promised Land, but he wasn't allowed in. Because yep. along the way, he lost his temper and, you know, lashed out in violence against a rock. But, you know, like, lashed out in violence. Right, yeah. And God was like, God was like, nope, like, you fucked up. You know, like, you you did this wrong. So, like, when you get to the promised land, they get to go in and you have to yeah. stay out there and just, like, watch. Right, yeah. You have to, like, atone for the thing that you did. Yeah. Yeah, and exactly. That's, and that's why, like, my – it's like my – my Catholic heart very much likes the idea of like the the thing that I am excited about about the um you know the possibility of leadership being transferred to somebody like Maddie kind of taking over the Joshua role right like taking over mm-hmm. the role of yeah. like the second generation person who comes in to sort of like complete that journey it actually sort of ties up that uh, arc very nicely and not that Octavia necessarily like I mean maybe she gets banished maybe she's just like aggressively demoted <laughs> you know but um I kind of feel like there's like there's there's a Xena reboot Starring Octavia, like, just waiting in the wings here. You know, because, like, Xena's back yeah. backstory is, like, she was this horrifically evil yeah, warlord, yeah. terror, mm-hmm. whatever. And then she saw the error of her ways, and then mm-hmm. she changed, and she used her powers for good. So, like, there's a part of me that's, like, is Octavia going to get, like, the Xena like, <laughs> Can I – okay. Can I just – can I just – can I just say something just, like, real gay for a second? Um <laughs> Imagine, (laughs) imagine if you will, picture this in your head, Xena reboot with Octavia as Xena and Clark as Gabrielle. Oh boy. That would be, (laughs) that would be That would be the best shit I've ever seen. I was, I still would, I would still like to have Nyla as Gabrielle. I think oh, you know what? Actually, Gabrielle. yeah. Clark, Clark is, Clark has the wrong kind of energy. Yeah, Octavia yeah, and Nyla. Yeah. You're right. And not, uh, Nightavia. Okay. So, so again, putting this out to the universe. <laughs> oh, meditation <laughs> listeners. If anybody wants to write a Nightavia Xena AU, <laughs> I would be thrilled to consume it. Thank you for your time. 
Uh, I anyway. would watch that spinoff. Oh my god, I would be. It would be my like. It's already my favorite show. It doesn't even exist yet. I don't even care that they would have to like make up some reason why there are other people still existing in the world that they'd be like right. riding around saving. I don't even care. Exactly. It's fine. Yeah. I'll go Who cares? Like, whatever. Who cares? Yeah. We'll fix it in post. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah. So I. So I think. Um, so for 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 me, I felt like the the one thing I will sort of say I I think the 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 back to back of like you know in the dark year of sort of seeing how Octavia became who she became and like us seeing that like the utter like horrific appalling sort of origin story of Bloodraina juxtaposed with this as kind of like the ending of it. It's like I think. I think it both it it works to sort of see those things side by side, and also I do feel like because we're so near the end of the season, what I what I don't want to happen, what I think what would feel like a kind of an unsatisfying next step from here, would be if the only kind of acknowledgement, atonement, repentance, kind of consequences for Octavia of the things that we like just watch her do and the kind of like the, the world that we've been watching, you know, her sort of presiding over the past rest over the season. If it's rushed through too quickly, kind of the consequences of the relationship between her and everybody else, you know, like if, like if Maddie shows up, rallies the troops and Octavia is now Maddie is second and they all, you know, like then, then it's like, that feels like a little bit too easy. Like I, I want there to be still a lot of like, I, I want her to kind of have to continue building back trust in some degree, even if it's never completely possible, which is completely, which is totally forgivable, um, with everybody else in one crew, you know? So, um, it's like a place to start with that would be like, I'd love, and maybe this is something that'll kind of all will be part of the rebuilding. I hope in season six, you know, like, we, which we talked about a little bit like last, last week, like the hope that, you know, if this season is about sort of like burning everything to the ground again, can, you know, can next season be the season? Can it be about building something? Can we end this season on a sort of a note of like hope and forward motion? And then in season six, whatever happens, wherever everybody ends up, that we're, that we're building relationships, that we're spending time on those emotional connections, that we're sort of recentering these people, you know, with each other and, and giving people time to sort of unpack. Once, you know, now that they're out of the bunker, now that they're out of one crew, a one crew is no longer necessary and you have some space to think and feel about it, like, I think, and the battle's over, you know, like, if we, whatever we get in season six of peacetime, it's like, you know, like, these people are all traumatized, and there's shit that nobody has processed, you know, so I feel like the idea of Octavia and the people over whom she used to be the leader and isn't anymore, her kind of having to come to, like, multiple layers of that reckoning, you know, like, does she, does she begin to try to make amends with Kane, or is is that relationship effectively severed because of what Kane did, you know, like, like, or, or are they kind of like, okay, I guess now we're even, <laughs> which in a way I think like, you know, uh, makes some sense. And also I think potentially the same, you know, I'd, I'd like to see her have the same kind of acknowledgement, you know, like with Kane, with Brel, with everybody else in, in one crew who didn't follow that, like, the same kind of moment that sh- that we got to watch her have with Bellamy and Indra, which is again that like, you know, no matter how bad things got, it's shitty what Kane did, and we'll talk more about that at the end. But also, 
he believed it was necessary because of choices that she made. So again, it's like she moved the chess pieces into place that put him in a position where he thought the only thing to keep the human race from being wiped out is Octavia and whoever else still follows her has to be essentially like, you know, forcibly taken out. So I guess what I, what I hope to see from her in season six is that her journey kind of from here on out, but particularly over the course of the next season, is about what is her place in this society now and her relationship with all of these other people to whom she's done terrible, traumatizing things to hold on to, you know, a future that we still don't even know if they're even going to get yet. You know, like, um, like if they, if, if McCreary like blows up the valley or the, you know, Chekhov's worms come back or they all end up kidnapped by Allegius three or whatever, you know, if nobody gets to the valley, then everything that she did, you could argue, like, on some level was for nothing. And how does that make people like Brel feel, you know? So so I think I want to – I really, 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 really liked her stuff in this episode as a first step. And I'm hoping that they don't rush too quickly through the consequences of that just to sort of get her back on the adventure squad and get her back in the fold again. So that's kind of one place where I'm, like, I'm I'm reserving judgment because I do feel like – the things that she did in the dark year, you know, the episode we just saw are so, so terrible and so violent and so traumatizing that I feel like, you know, if like if if two episodes later, everyone is like, good to have Octavia back, you know, then it's going to feel like, <laughs> ooh. So we're like yeah, kind of yeah. sweeping under the rug the like fascist totalitarian murder, you know, what? so anyway, so. Yeah, and then, I mean, like, plus, you know, like, the, the dark year was, like, like we talked about last time, you know, like, the dark year happened because of food scarcity, like, it, it forced her to become this sort of monster, and then she went and she burned the farm, you know, so yes. like, she recreated a horrific, you know, so, like, yes, exactly. I, I don't want, yeah. I don't want that, now that she's sort of, like, you know, have her, like, wow, yeah, I guess I am the worst. You know, I guess I'll go die now. Oh, whoops, I didn't die. Uh, right. Like, now I'm on your side thing. Like, I, I hope I'm with you. I'm sort of like, okay, like, I like this. I, I like it as, a, you know, I like this episode as the kind of, like, the way that it does that kind of, like, nadir point. You know, like, I like it as all the consequences coming home for Octavia and yeah. and the way that it doesn't ever let up and it doesn't let her off the mm-hmm. hook, you know, yes. with, with any of it or with uh, with any of the people that she's with. Um, and I really hope that they don't just let her off the hook, you know, <laughs> yeah, in the yeah. next episode of the next season, just because like, oh, we have that moment. And so now it's like, you know, like I, like, there's way more consequences than just the ones with Bellamy and Gaia and Indra. And just because she like happened to not die doesn't right. mean <laughs> she's not, she's not redeemed yet. And, no, and, no. and Indra and Bellamy can't be the avatar for her like, I guess, quote unquote, redemption, although that's the wrong word, but like her, I guess her atonement, like, like they, like they can't sort of, I, I think it'll feel unsatisfying if it's like we watch her sort of make amends with two people via which we can extrapolate that she's now basically like, now she's made it, you know, now she's right with God, you know, with like everybody else. It's like that yeah, can't, yeah, yeah. That can't yeah. be how it works. That will feel yeah. like it's giving the things she did a pass or being like everyone in this show does terrible things. And it's like, well, yes, and but. Plus, like, like Bellamy is still getting the season three massacre thrown in his face 
two yeah. and a half plus seasons later. Right. Like- they sort of arbitrarily select <laughs> like, like you know, like everyone says, like everyone in the show is saying all the time, like we've all done terrible things. We all do bad yeah. shit to survive. Everyone's yeah. got blood on their hands. And that's true. Like that is a accurate fact. And yet which of those instances kind of pop back up as parallels or recurring plot points or are thrown by person A into person B's face or whatever does feel subjective. And it also does feel like, and it feels like, like, Bellamy gets the sword under the stick a lot. A you know? lot. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, and, and sometimes Clark too, but like, um, but so I, I think, I think sort of across the board, something that I, that I hope, and I, and I, we can talk about this when we get to the Vincent scene, but, but Vincent's really kind of uh, astonishingly perfect thesis statement line about consciences versus not doing the thing, you know? Yeah. Like um, a conscience is just a thing that you pretend to listen to, a voice you pretend to listen right. to between, between, you know, yeah, between deplorable acts, like between doing what yeah. you're going to do anyway, you know? Right. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so I, so what I like about that is, is sort of an articulation of what I hope continues to sort of be a theme of like, everybody has shit to reckon with. The things that they've done are varying degrees of the spectrum of defensible to indefensible. You know, like, like some things that people did are like, it's always 300 people. I don't know why. But some, <laughs> some groups of 300 people, how they died was more like you could make a stronger case for that person believing it was necessary than others. So yeah, so I think that there's, so like some, but, but, uh, but with Octavia, like, you know, her realization that she broke one girl, like her realization that like she, she was handed a responsibility or she took a responsibility. She won that conclave. You know, she like, she saved the human race. She made the decision that we're all going to share this bunker together so that at least a little piece of every clan and every culture will get to survive. And that one group of people isn't more important than the other. Like she made what at the time felt like the fairest and most balanced way to, you know, build a society, build a new, you know, sort of way to be, you know, she, she began that process. And then when a crisis hit, she couldn't sort of figure out how to like, kind of keep it going in a way that lived up to the spirit of how that quest kind of began, how what she had intended to become, you know? And so I feel like, you know, and, and we get this sort of the first kind of flicker of, of that, you know, the moment where when Bellamy opens the bunker uh, and Dios is asking, like, how many people are we prepping for? And he realizes that he's off by, like, 400 people, you know, and Octavia sort of sees in his face, like, sees him looking at her like, you're like, what the fuck did you do down there? <laughs> you're like, you had one job, Octavia, you know? Um, like, I, I think that's, like, like what I like about that moment is that that's sort of the first time that we really get to see her seeing from outside her eyes kind of how this looks. And she immediately sort of becomes defensive. You know, like, she immediately kind of goes into attack mode. And we, and you know, we find out later, it was like, it's true, like, Bellamy wasn't there. Like, Bellamy really has no idea how bad it got. It got really, really bad. But that sense that she had of, like, that conviction that – she was the only person who could have saved them because she was the person who like, you know, she won the conclave. So that like sort of made her, it's weird. It's funny. It's like a, the sort of, the modern day political parallels are so funny. Like the kind of, like the person who's ruthless enough to win the campaign isn't necessarily the person who makes the best president. Not to like, you know, name names, but like, um, (laughs) you know, some, some current presidents of the United States, but you know, like, 
that's a horrible comparison. Like even even like even Octavia is not that bad. But like, <laughs> but you know, but like, but the idea that like the person who who can knock everyone else out of the way enough to like get the job, then not being able to do the job and feeling really defensive and vulnerable and lashing out and attacking because you have to kind of hold on to that power. It's like this is a common and oft repeated kind of political story. So I I think. My big question, and I and I hope that season six really, really takes the time to sort of resolve it satisfactorily, is that like from like from this point, like she could go anywhere. Like she could become anything. And she could become something really extraordinary if they really let her spend the time that they need to spend kind of dwelling in like, what does it mean that she had the responsibility of saving the whole human race and she got so many people killed in ways that were many of which were totally preventable and incredibly selfish. And, and that the, and that she fucked up their future. Like, I was really glad that Bellamy brought back the burning of the farm. You know, like, the problem isn't just the cannibalism. The problem isn't just that she made people march. It's that she made it so that there was no other option for them, and they're all out of food already again, you know? So, so yeah, so I guess I'm just sort of – I want to make sure that we live for a good long time in what does it look like for her to begin to make amends – with all of the other people that she harmed besides just these two, instead of kind of triangulating her entire sort of return to the fold through just the two of them. And I want to, I think it's important that that not be easy. Like, I think it's important that it take a full season or more for the people who were part of one crew, you know, who lost so many people that they love because of her choices to begin to sort of trust her again. Otherwise it's going to feel like they're like, you know, they're kind of sweeping that level of violence under the rug. And that's like a really bad look. (laughs) Yeah, no, I agree. I completely agree. And I think there've been so many very subtle sort of hints of Lincoln in Octavia's world throughout the system, both in terms of the, like the, some of the insignias and the, the decorations and the, on the walls of one crew, you know, they're, they're Lincoln's tattoos. And there's like little bits of him there. And I thought, there was in, in Octavia, you know, like when she sort of throws the gun aside and she drops to her knees with her arms out, mm-hmm. um, there's that kind yes, of visual yes. parallel to when in season three, uh, Lincoln sacrificed himself, you know, gave himself up to Pike in order to give the rest of the grounders the, you know, sort of the opportunity to flee and get away alive. And I thought like that was a really, really chilling kind of parallel. And I yeah. thought it was really interesting that like, you know, it's like, it's a very, again, like kind of dark and ironic parallel, you know, like the sort of where, where Lincoln was like truly, truly altruistically, heroically, you know, like sacrificing himself to save others from this really kind of pure place. Um, you know, Octavia has, was kind of like pushed, pushed to the point where she, had nothing left to lose, you know, and this was the moment that she walked out there to make the sacrifice. And I think it's also like, it feels significant to me that in the end, Octavia was denied that martyr's death. Like she walked out there to martyr herself and she didn't get to, you know, and I think there's something really important in sort of, she drops her knees with her arms out and that kind of like, she's dying like Lincoln, but she's not, you know, like that sort of like, you don't get to get, you. I, I, I like, to me, it feels a little bit like, I'm glad she didn't die. Because I feel like that would be the easy way out. I don't want her to oh, out yeah. and be like, well, I reached the evil point, so I'm going to die. I'm going to sacrifice myself for the last two people I love. 
you know, and like, I, I want her to like have to get up and keep going and go back to one crew and look in their eyes when they look at her and repudiate her. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like her having to sort of walk through the gauntlet of the people who now realize that she killed them, who are now turning against her. Like, I feel like that's the real retribution. And that's the kind of like, that's the like fire that I want her to burn in for a while. Yes, exactly. No, me too. Like I, I want it to be what I, what I wanted and we didn't get from Jaha after season three. Like I want the yeah, people who, yeah. you know, people who, who lost things or were forced to do horrible things in the city of light. Like I never quite felt like there was, there was enough of the kind of reckoning of that that I wanted, you know, like it, it sort of, it felt like he kind of got shifted very quickly into a different, story and uh and there was bits of it you know but he you know but he got but he he had a job he got to be an engineer again i think the thing that's interesting and noteworthy about octavia is that like you know like as as we sort of seen over and over again like being a warrior is that's like the one thing that she's good at like this is or this is her perception of like the who she is the one thing that she can do the one thing that she sort of contributes to the group and so we we don't have much of an idea, you know, she was such a shitty farmer when shredded for five minutes like, <laughs> with Ilian. <laughs> the part of oh me almost God. is like, kind of wants that to be like her penance. Oh my yeah, God. Yeah. Like she's going to stay on earth. Like she has to like stay back with Monty and Harper to terraform, yeah. you know, and she's just, like out there sulkily hoeing all yeah. day long. <laughs> it's like, like, just like whacking at the ground with her hoe and be like, fuck this shit. I hate everything. <laughs> Oh god, that was so fucking funny. But so so we, you know, I think we've we've seen her kind of like half-assedly try and then immediately be like, nope, this is who I am. Like who I am is like bloody and like soaked in murder. And you know, and I think that I think at this point it's clear that like that can't continue. And she's realized that that can't continue. So what is the next iteration of Octavia? What does she bring to the group? What can she contribute to build instead of destroy, like to make the world better. You know, I think it would actually be like, like, you know, like, like we're joking about it, but I think it'd actually be kind of lovely if, if part of what her role ends up being is about food, is about like, you know, helping Monty with the algae or something like helping prevent, pre- like preventing another dark year, preventing another tragedy, like the one that she inflicted on those people, not by, forcible population reduction, but by abundance instead of scarcity. I think that that, that's a version of her that I would like to see because that feels to me like, like steps towards like real atonement. Like it isn't just that she, she kind of had that, those confrontations with Indra and with Bellamy. It's like, no, what you did to all the surviving people on earth the whole of the group, like what you did to them, these people will never recover, you know, and, and what you did to the world and the possibility of rebuilding the world and burning the farm, like that farm will never recover. So what are you doing, Octavia, to build something better instead of being a person who for the past, you know, three seasons, like all we've seen her do is burn things down. And I'd love for there to be some kind of an, you know, an homage to Lincoln in that, but I just really feel like, you know, like I, I, I need to see her have to work through that shit with the way everybody else has been traumatized and, you know, and, and slaughtered, you know, by the things that she did. Like, you know, like I, I think that, 
you know, going off of how few people are left of all the people that came down into the bunker with her, the number of dead bodies that we that we see in the, you know, those beginning battle scenes of the episode, it's like, that's a statistically hugely significant percentage of all of your people left on Earth, Octavia. Mm -hmm. Like, that's like, like, heavy, heavy losses, like, across the board, but just in proportion to, like, how many people you started out with. The amends for that, I think, are the piece that needs to happen. You know, I think in the next episode, I think a peaceful transfer of power will go a long way to that. You know, if she's not fighting Maddie as she sort of like recuses herself and lets somebody else with a different mind kind of take charge. But but that's what I hope, you know, like if she if she lives, which I now am feeling much better about, I hope that her journey over the whole next season is sort of instrumental in rebuilding whatever gets rebuilt like piece by piece. And and I hope that it is long and painful because it should be. You know, like that is it really, that's yeah. how you make no, things sure. right, you know? Yep, for sure. Let's pause briefly in the desert where one crew is. Yes. Just because we got a couple of sort of interesting, I'm not going to say nice because they they weren't actually nice moments, but I like that kind of little moment we got with Miller coming back, like a nice little Maxon moment of Jackson seeing him hurt and sort of rushing over. But also that kind of was like a very interesting little moment of Miller's kind of desperation to hang on to the promise of victory. You know, like, Brel's kind of like, it's over, we're done, like, we can't win, we're not going to march back. And and I thought it was really kind of interesting that Miller, you know, that it's not just Octavia who's kind of, like, bought into the sunk cost place, but, like, Miller as well is kind of in this point where, like, he's he's injured, he's bleeding, you know, that there's no way out, but he cannot let go of, like, we have to keep going, we have to win. Like, he cannot kind of, like, let go of that point. Yes, I thought it was it was cool to see that made sort of made explicit and textual something that we had kind of been assuming like it was it was sort of like there and kind of obliquely present, you know, like from his behavior, from the way that he was that he was sort of reacting and responding that we we're like, okay, so this is he's gone all in with her, you know, and he also feels like the things that he's done, the things that he's allowed to happen are meaningless if they don't make it to the valley. Yeah, it was so painful. But also really illuminating, I think, kind of watching him crumble. Yeah. That face-off between him and Brel, like, watching him try so hard to get anybody to come back with him. You know, like, that he would just, like, he was ready. He would have, like, picked up his gun and charged back in there. And Brel is like, no one else is going to die for Blood Raina. Like, you're it. It's kind of heartbreaking. Like, he's the only person that wants to go back. Yeah. A lot of it, I think, is like a sort of like, we can still win. We have to still win. But I think there's like a little something bittersweet, too. And there's an element of... You know, it's it's Bellamy and Octavia. You know, I think there was a little moment yeah. of like, you know, like he's one of the original delinquents and that is Bellamy and Octavia in there, you know, and he's known them forever and he doesn't want to just leave them to die. You know, like that little piece there's, you know, is a piece of it as well. Yeah. You know, the contrast between like Brel and everybody else, like they don't know Octavia, they know Blood Raina and they don't know Bellamy at all. You know, like those, they're just like, they're just another couple people they're not going to die for. And, and, you know, and for Miller and for a couple other people, but mostly for, you know, for Miller in that moment, it's like, like, no, we can't let this happen. I guess there is one person in the world who still loves Octavia and it's Miller, but she doesn't know that. <laughs> well, and, and it's also like, what a, and what a beautiful contrast from the last couple of episodes that Miller doesn't want Bellamy to die. Yeah, yeah. 
I was thinking as I was watching it and then like, and then it felt even more clear on second rewatch that in some ways it's like Miller's journey is like a microcosm of Octavia's. Yeah. It has so many of the same beats. And he also like, we were waiting on the pivot, you know, like waiting, waiting yeah. for it to click in, mm-hmm. into place for him that by choosing Blood Reina's side, he's chosen against Bellamy and all of these other people that he cared about that he knew for just as long as he knew Octavia, you know, but he's like, he sort of planted his flag and he kind of can't let go of this stuff either. So yeah, so I think that the idea that he'll rush right back into danger, like not just because he believes that if the whole army follows, there's a chance that they can, you know, still win, but because he, like all of the other, you know, the whole sort of like delinquents plus Jackson and Nyla little little squad, like seeing all those characters that we love kind of finally on the same team. Yeah. Was surprisingly emotional given like what a sort of small overall kind of slice of the story it ended up being. We sort of only kind of pinged in with that group just the one time. But like seeing Nyla and Harper being healers together, you know, Jackson's panic at realizing that like they're out of medical equipment and the person who's injured now is the person that he loves. And like, what can he do? You know? This and then this sort of adventure squad moment, you know, the very, very end, there were these sort of two moments that were about like groups of characters who we love and are deeply attached to, who have been fragmented and on opposite sides, finally coming together. And that's the kind of thing, like, that's the sort of lead up to the finale, you know, hope is potentially on the horizon moments that we need at this point in the season. You know, we need the fracturing to begin to mend. The groups are like coalescing. Yeah. Brell is so interesting because she like, you know, like we see her like in the first bunker episode where she's like making a stink about blankets, <laughs> you know, and then she like goes away forever. And then except for as kind of like a sort of glorified background extra. And then after Cooper dies, she kind of steps in as like Cooper 2.0 and you're kind of like, was this supposed to be Cooper? But then like the actress had to leave or something. So now it's you. But then it, but then it becomes clear that it's like, oh no, she's the embodiment of this split within one crew of like this whole other faction where it's like, we're marching with you because we all kind of happen to be like walking loosely in the same direction. But like, we're not your people <laughs> and we don't answer to right. you. You know, like, yeah. like this sort of Miller versus Brell about like, how fucking dare you act like you have people. And she's like, I'm the one they follow. I'm telling him to march yep. to the marching, but they're not her people. They're my people. You know, the sort of face off between the two of them. And I think his realization that without Blood Reina as the leader and without him as the person who is like the one helping Blood Reina do all of those things in this now completely crumbled power structure, who is Miller? What is his role? So I think the idea of him peeling off and getting more merged in with the delinquents group as opposed to Blood Reina's army, I think is sort of a shift that could be happening. And it was nice, even if it was like for two fucking seconds, it was nice to have like him and Harper get to interact. I was like, oh, I was waiting on this. <laughs> like, yeah. it was much of a reunion, you know, but it was nice <laughs> to see them make eye contact with each other at least. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yep. Yeah, no, I mean, like, definitely the the sort of the last moment, you know, Adventure Squad all in the rover again together, rushing off to save everyone was like, very much the kind of like, yeah, fist pump, all right, here we go, sort of moment that we desperately needed. And I, I do feel like it's a little late, you know, like, the way that these relationships are broken, I'm like, okay, this feels like it's arriving late this season. But we, you know, who knows, they could do a lot in one episode. So we'll see how that goes in the in the next one. 
So shall we shift over to Clark? Yes. Speaking of pivots and and speaking of pivots, who, who go through the darkest timeline and then make a flip into what their finale arc will be, which is hopefully better than the current episode. Yeah. So Clark's Clark stuff in this episode, I feel like the f- okay. So the first time I watched it, the moment where she shocks. Maddie with the collar was so bad. I was so Mm -hmm. upset Mm -hmm. that honestly, it overshadowed the entire rest of the episode. Like I was just, I could not, I couldn't even concentrate on like, like I couldn't, I couldn't deal with Clark. Like I couldn't, Mm -hmm. after that moment for the rest of that episode, the first watch through, there was kind of no coming back for me with Clark. Like it was just, Mm -hmm. I was so like shocked and upset that she had done that. So it, it honestly kind of pulled me out and, and made it impossible for me to really, for like a lot of the actually like the good stuff that came later in the episode to land. Mm-hmm. And having processed that, you know, for a few days and, you know, like talked to a lot of people about it, including people like you who had a different sort of first time viewing experience with it and also watching it again. Like, I feel like now where I'm at with Clark, I'm like, I can compartmentalize that. There are a couple of sort of major issues that I have with Clark still. And like, one of them is just this episode and that's that moment. The other one has to do with kind of like where her whole arc in the second, in the, over the course of the season the second half of the season especially has landed her to kind of like put her in the position where she is in this episode that while even the stuff that does work with Clark in this episode, I I sort of like I have some fundamental issues with things having to like the way that things wound up having to go in this episode. So it's like kind of weird for me because I'm like, on the one hand, I have this sort of like box of stuff where I'm like massive, massive like problems and reservations with Clark. And then on the other hand, I also have this box where I'm like, there's stuff that I really, really love. Mm-hmm. about Clark in this episode and that box is labeled Belark. <laughs> so I have like I have like my here I have my like my box of Clark beefs and then I have my box of shippy flails. Mm-hmm. And like I have to I've sort of over the last couple days I'm like I have to like figure out how to what goes in each box and then put boxes on the opposite sides of the room so that I can adequately like <laughs> deal with each of them because I can't actually manage to do them at the same time. But <laughs> <laughs> and I know that the like the shocking thing for you was less less viscerally upsetting, although still kind of. Yeah, I agree with you that it, it's one of the worst single moments of anything I think has. I've ever seen on this show. Like it's it's one yeah. of the most It's this grotesque like it's it's literal child abuse. There's no yeah. negotiating. Mm-hmm. There's no working around that fact. Like there's just no. there isn't like there's nothing else you can call it. And it, no. like, I, and I know, you know, like, I know in, in fandom, like, abuse is a word that gets tossed around a lot, often meaninglessly, often just sort of as a way to code. It's like, I don't like this thing, so I'm calling it abusive. But, like, this is like, mm-hmm. I think it's important to be very, very clear what we call it when you cause physical harm to your child under the guise of, like, quote unquote, this is for your own good. And how, first of all, how triggering that is for anyone who's been anywhere in that kind of situation in real life, because, like, that is Mm -hmm. what abusers say. Mm -hmm. What it does to people watching this show who have this deep, deep, deep love and connection to Clark, to see, not just to see her do that, but then to see the show kind of not reckon with it, 
in terms yeah. of like the magnitude of what that means and and that Maddie kind of herself kind of skates by it. Yeah. So for me, so I think the reason, like for me, the reason I watched it differently was I, I used to watch it and I flagged it and I was like, that's a really terrible writing choice. That yeah. if you extracted yeah. it from the story, <laughs> the rest of what happens in Clark's journey in this episode, to me, I was like, yeah, I'm down. Here's things about that I believe. I believe that Clark, at the point at which that happens, like Clark has reached a place of such desperation. You know, like she, she's already taken the conductor out of the rover. She's already mm-hmm. like forcibly done something like, you know, if Maddie tries to bolt, like I'm one step ahead of you. You know, like she's already mm-hmm. making choices to... Um, to indicate that, like, she's still on this path of, like, I'm the mom, I said so, what I say goes, you know, like, there's no, like, you don't have any agency, you're just a kid, you know, and, and I think what I buy about that as sort of, like, this kind of increasingly hysterical, panicked kind of escalation of the journey that she's been on over the course of the whole season, like, I get that we're supposed to buy that she's reached a point where there's literally nothing that she won't do to keep like her sort of one remaining person you know alive i mean and, and abby mm-hmm. like i think like abby sort of is indirectly part of that but it's like maddie is like the uh, the, the child like maddie is like mm-hmm. the the sort of direct focus of this mm-hmm. so you know up to and including like shouting at each other taking the thing out of the rover so maddie can't leave forcibly blocking her exit you know like picking her up and tossing her over your shoulder and throwing her back mm-hmm. in the car like she's smaller than you you know like mm-hmm. like when you're a mom and you feel like your kid is running towards danger physically removing them from that danger you know like like picking up your toddler and yanking them away from the hot stove they're about to grab is not the same thing as child abuse like those yes. are those are qualitatively different things like I'm not a parent so this doesn't land for me in a way of like a par- thinking about like my own children this is like I think these are just sort of like things about the world that we acknowledge are true is that yeah. like yanking your kid away from the stove so they don't burn themselves even if you're rough with them and it's scary and they cry like it's not good it's not it's not a great thing, but it is a thing that you're doing to save them from a greater danger. That yeah. is not what happened in this episode. That's what happened when they were sort of shouting at each other, the sort of negotiation yes. about the flame. And th- so like everything up to that point, like her trying to take, like her going back on her word about I won't remove the flame. And then she does that. She says the passphrase, even though she made a promise to Maddie, which we just saw her reinforce to Abby. Like, I told her I wouldn't do it. I told her I wouldn't do it. I told her it was her choice. I told her it was her choice. Like, even that as sort of a violation of Maddie's agency felt like, okay, I get, like, I see this as a place that we've watched you land. And then even when she snapped the collar on, I'm like, okay, so is this a threat like this is it's like you, you should watch it get like increasingly worse yeah. to me it, it, to me it goes off the rails before that so mm-hmm. I agree with you like there's okay so there's two humongous problems with this scene one of them is the fact that it's it's abuse and then they just mm-hmm. sort of like well, it's like so one of them is just like the abuse part of it the other part of it is that like you said if you removed this scene from the episode it would have no, it would not change the story mm-hmm. in any way whatsoever, which means it's not necessary. Right. So it's like simultaneously a monumentally, stunningly bad writing choice, like choice to have it happen at all. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. also bad writing in that it did literally did not have to happen. 
Like, right. it's not like that happened, and then that's the story of the episode. It's like it happened, and if you pretend it didn't happen, then literally nothing else changes. So it's like right. bad writing uh, from that right. from that perspective, too. So to me, though, where it went off the rails, like, okay, we'll stipulate this. Clark believes that Maddie is literally running towards her inevitable violent death. She's running towards a war zone. Clark believes that if she allows her to run into that war zone, she will absolutely die. Okay, so knowing that her child is trying to run towards certain death. So from that perspective, I'm like, her saying Achende Superius, okay, you know, like that's, that's mm-hmm. not, it's not great. It's not cool. You know, she is kind of going back on a promise. But on the other hand, this is a thing that she can do to stop her from running towards danger, physically blocking her exit. Like, it's, like mm-hmm. you said, like if, if Maddie was trying to get past her, even sort of like physically grabbing her and pushing her in the other direction or picking mm-hmm. her up, you know, like anything where she's sort of like, you are not going to leave this cave. Like you are going to yeah. come back to, with me to the place where you're safe. I'm not going to let you run to your actual literal death. Right. That's fine. The place where it goes off, like, fine in terms of, like, I get it. Like, like if that had happened, like, if, if if Clark had just, like, picked her up and physically carried her away. Like, again, it's not like it's not great. It right. Look not, awesome. not morally you know, okay, but narratively logical. Right. But, like, narratively, I would be, like, for me, that would be, like, all right, this is, like, terrified mom, like, understandable from a sort of terrified mom perspective, you know? Right. Not super pleasant, definitely a low point for Clark, which is what this is supposed to be, but not something that would, like, so extreme that I'm, like, I feel like Clark has, before my eyes, become a different person and somebody that I cannot ever root for again, which is what right. actually happened. So the thing that, for me, like, before the collar even goes on, before she even shocks her, the thing to me that really makes it shitty is the manipulation. Because Clark pretends to give in. She lets Maddie think she gave in to get her guard down. So she like mm-hmm. basically lies to Maddie to let her to, to get her to let her guard down. Then she hugs her. Then she puts the the shot collar on. So already the sort of like deception and then shot collar is a betrayal. You know, like that's not a mom being straightforward and being like, I'm not going to let you go die. You know, like that's that's her being like, how can I manipulate my child? You know, like that's that's like the Clark who tried to trick Luna into like getting the flame in her, which was like that was super fucking bad. But Luna's also mm-hmm. an adult and not her literal dependent child who right. loves her and trusts her. You know, like like that was a betrayal of Maddie's trust in a way that was like really really fucked up to me. And then so there's that, which I think kind of changes. Like, the fact that that shot collar went on in that way, I think, sort of changes things in a really mm-hmm, sort of messed mm-hmm. up way. And then the shocking itself, like, that, like, that is her. Because here's the thing about the shot colors. I think this is the other piece of it. Is the other piece of the sort of narrative significance of the shot collars that I think they possibly did not think about or consider, both here and with Abby, when Abby shocked Raven, mm-hmm. is that every other context that we've seen those shot collars in, are either for control and, like, control of prisoners. Like, really, like, fucked up, like, controlling people through pain. Or, more directly in this show, for torture. Including in this episode, when, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Shaw and Raven have a long conversation about being tortured with those exact same collars and whether or not they can stand to be tortured or stand to see each other's tortured. And then this is also an episode in which... Abby kills Vincent with a collar. Mm-hmm. So like mm-hmm. 
It's not like, like, we know and we've been told. And, and, and also, we watched Clark get tortured with those collars. So it's not like Clark right. doesn't know how that feels. Like, Clark knows how incredibly painful it is. And so those, those collars are all bound up in control and literal torture. Mm-hmm. And we know, like, viscerally, and we're told over and over and over again how horrible the experience is of being shocked by them. So to watch Clark trick her child into, like, snapping it on and then pull that fucking trigger. Like, Maddie was like, it's not like she was running. It's not like Clark couldn't have turned around and grabbed her by the arm. She did not have to pull that trigger. Mm-hmm. So for her to trick her and then put on that collar and then inflict that kind of pain in a way that in the show is has been sort of like constructed to be synonymous with torture and with like sort of despotic control is just like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the only – it's the only response to it. I, I feel like, yeah. you know, one – like one thing I think is happening with the shot collars, and I think in an, in an interesting way, I think it it dovetails a little bit with with the uh, with the McCreary problem. I think over the course of the season, we have felt the narrative almost become in some ways like I don't know if it's like desensitized to them, but it's like 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 var- variance in how in how they're used in a way that doesn't always. Like that isn't always consistent, you know. Like, like, yeah, so, like yeah. I think, I think the show thinks sometimes the shot collar is is so bad that, like, you know, like when we see, you know, we see people who have like scars from it, or we see that yeah. like, they can kill people, or it's like Shaw would literally rather die that, you know, like he wants, like, like yeah. all of this stuff, like how bad they are, you know, yeah, versus. Shot collars as as plot device. Yep. Mm-hmm. And yep. in the same way that I think that like that McCreary as a character, I th- so it's, it's like it's like overexposure to the shot collars means I wonder if the writers have disconnected on some level from how for us the audience they continue to be as terrifying as they always were. I think in sort of a similar way, that, like McCreary at this point is like like so transparently evil that he has stopped being scary in some ways. Yeah. Right. You know, yeah. like I was so much more <laughs> I was so much more scared of him. In the first couple episodes where he was this kind of like quiet, charming, sinister presence that kind of hadn't snapped yet. Whereas now, like, his go-to move seems to involve, like, leaving the room because he's a guest star who can't be in every scene with, like, two red shirts <laughs> playing poker, guarding people having incredibly plot-significant conversations, but not actually participating. So I'm kind of it's like, like, I'm so much <laughs> like, less scared. Like, you do wonder, like, what were those guys thinking, you know? Like, but those guys are sitting there playing poker being like... How, like, wait, like how? How is this important information that we're getting from the spy? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, like, like huge, like rebellion things are happening, like yeah. ten feet away, but they're just yeah. like beep, boop, beep, pocket aces, you know. So yeah. like, and then they're like, um, oh, they're done. To, like, their significant like character altering conversation is done. So I guess it's just you know, it's time for us to get up and like right. gesture yeah. towards our guns. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's like so it's this whole sort of weird thing where where it's just like I think part of why I'm frustrated at why everyone keeps trusting McCreary is because the stakes seem so low because he's lost I think that that fearsomeness as a presence that he had at the beginning yeah. when he was this like caged animal where you yeah. knew that there was all of this darkness in him and we hadn't seen it come out yet and that was so much more scary. So I think with the shot collars, I think that overuse of them to like just kind of keep moving plots forward. Like they're you know they're like the, like the geotagging for example. Like yeah, the shot yeah. collars are a plot device that can control 
who is in what room at certain times for plot reasons, you know, like, yeah, yeah, like yeah. Raven can go help Abby, but can't bust Abby out of there and make a run for it because like her shot collar has been geotagged to the gas station for the day or whatever, you know, and they're a convenient way for us to show like, this is how far Abby has fallen to get these pills that she'll use shot collar on Raven. You know, this is how desperate Clark is. She's at the shot collar on Maddie. So the idea of them as a plot device and, and how, you know, we've reached a point in the season where there's this sort of huge swath of the, you know, characters we're following who kind of have them on all the time. And we're just kind of used to seeing them that they, the kind of terror factor they're meant to convey is no longer kind of evenly distributed and, and yeah. to, to the writers, I think in the story. Yeah. But I think yeah, it is yeah. to us, you know, like I think yeah. like any, you know, every time the shot caller clicks on, you know, we flash back to, you know, the first time we saw it used, which was on Clark and it was terrifying, you know, mm-hmm. and she was like screaming and screaming in pain. So mm-hmm. I feel like that, you know, setting that precedent and then kind of like either using them casually or having people that we love use those things on other people that we love in a way that is horrifying to watch and is only done for kind of like casual plot reasons like again the same thing with like with Raven and Abby like there are a lot of things that Abby could do that would convey panic and desperation leading her to get physical with Raven in a way that we haven't seen since the slap. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like there are, there are ways that that could have worked as an escalation of how desperate Abby is that didn't involve a torture device. It didn't involve like yeah. her torturing someone that she cares about. And yet even with that, the stakes were higher. You know, like Raven's still mad at Abby and it's going to be a long time before we see her forgive her. Like Saint Maddie just got right over it 30 seconds later like yeah like it doesn't allow her to have it was literally not even an issue like like it never came up again it didn't it never change, came up again it didn't change clark and maddie's relationship but like like you would literally yeah. just like if you just lift that scene out if you just pretend it never happened nothing right. changes and like regardless of the content of that scene if that's true that's bad like right, that should right. never that means that the scene is pointless and it, if it doesn't need to exist then and then especially if it contains something that like to me for for like at least a little while at least for you know, Tuesday night from yeah. the point I saw that until, you know, I was like, I don't know if I can ever look at Clark again the same way again. And the right. fact that the oh, show yeah. wants me to. Right. Well, like, and I think- <laughs> like you broke your main character for right. literally nothing. Right. For, for a scene that didn't seem to move the plot forward in any way, because like we would like everything that we need to know of that scene, which is like Maddie is desperate and Clark is desperate to stop her. Yeah. yeah. We got that already. And, and we, so like, like Maddie could just like, like, even if she didn't, even if she never ran away, even if like, she just sort of sat there sulking as Clark and Abby, you know, saved the last prisoner. And then the next thing that happens is like, Echo shows up, gives Maddie an evac. She's so pissed. She's like, yeah, let's get out of here. Thank you. Somebody came to save me. This is what I wanted. You know, everything else could have moved forward exactly as it did without that. And I just, so I, this is a thing where like, we've. This is, this is not the first conversation that we have had about this show 
where an unexamined choice is made for plot reasons that triggers like real and deep trauma and discomfort in the part of the audience that like pulls them out of the story. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like it's the same thing, like the same conversation we had with, with Jasper, where it's like that, like, you know, we're like, you couldn't do the podcast the next week. We were just like, this is not yeah. like, like, I can't have a casual conversation unpacking the like plot mechanics of this scene between Kane and Jaha in the bunker while I'm feeling these things that I'm feeling because like we don't watch television in a vacuum like we mm-hmm. we exist in the world so like people like I and I hope the writers hear this because it's on you know like they're yeah. seeing it on social media like people who are parents people who have gone through a abuse where like a lot of the same language was used people who have been in situations where an adult that you trusted flipped on you and you know or in a situation where like you know like you think like because I, th- I hadn't thought about it that way but like the way you mentioned it like the fact that it comes disguised as a hug is yeah. horrifying. Yep. It's horrifying. It's like, yeah. like, come here, my precious child. I'm going to hug you. Ha ha, snapped on the collar. And yeah. it's like. That wasn't not- love. It was a trick to control you. Right. Like that, like that alone, that would right. be enough, honestly. That would be enough. Yeah. That would be bad enough, even without her pulling the trigger. That's right. still it's a betrayal. so bad. <laughs> and it like, and, and, and so for Maddie, for Maddie to be presented as so, as so blase. Well, or and not even blase, but like, but like, like the idea that Maddie is like the best person, like the idea that Maddie yeah, yeah, is yeah. so yeah. good and is so, you know, like has a good heart and is kind and wise and is the only person who is like thinking about the greater good. And so she's so good and she's so loving that she will instantly forgive abuse at this level and that she's comfortable, yeah. like, that she's comfortable hugging Clark again after what happened the last time. Yeah. It's very strange to me. You it's know? very strange um, because again, you could literally remove that scene from the episode and it would be a better episode of television than it was with it included. (laughs) Yes, and it would have freed up three minutes that you could have used somewhere else to flesh out. Like, we could have spent that much more time with Gaia. But, like, so... So I think, you know, or or even, or Maddie and Clark having a conversation that was a conversation, you know, and yeah. it could be heated and it could be an altercation and they could be yelling and, you know, storming around. But like, yeah. I don't. I mean, even if it was just like Maddie ran away mm-hmm. and Clark caught her and just like grabbed her and pulled her out of the rover and pulled her away. And then the next scene we see like Maddie sitting there sulkily with, right. you know, a collar on and shot mm-hmm. and, and Clark being like, I, I really don't want to do this, but I can't trust you not to run into like run to your right. death. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I wouldn't again, it wouldn't be great, but it right. would ad- it would adequately convey Maddie wants to get the fuck out of there to be with her people. And Clark is desperate enough to take really, really extreme measures right. without crossing all of those lines into something that again, for me, like the only way that I can move forward with Clark in the show is to mentally compartment, like to compartmentalize that scene in the way that I compartmentalize like Bellamy's massacre in season three or I think actually a much closer comparison would be Octavia beating up Bellamy Mm -hmm. in season three which is just by being like that was Mm. such a bad choice and you did such a bad job dealing with that choice that I'm just going to like chalk that up to huge fucking mistake and well, like mentally edit it out of ca- canon because you know, otherwise, like that just like how am I ever supposed to look at Clark the same? How am I ever supposed right. to like believe that Clark is anything like a good mother? <laughs> you know, right. like how am I ever supposed to supposed to root for the Clark Maddie relationship anymore if well, I actually take that scene seriously? Right. Well, it, you know, it, our speaking of the Octavia um, beating up Bellamy thing. So our 
My friend Sarah, a friend of the pod, Sarah, who's at um, Oscar Mike on Twitter, she had a really, I think it was either yesterday or the day before, she was tweeting about this, I think it was yesterday. She had a really nifty perspective on this that I, she sort of clarified it in a way that I hadn't thought of it before, where she said, kind of paralleling again, like he's like those two moments, like the Clark and Maddie shock collar and the Bellamy and Octavia thing, sort of framing it as like a kind of, a kind of recurring problem that crops up again periodically in this show is the sort of idea that like, well, because, you know, like it's a violent world it's a post-apocalyptic world everything's violent everyone everything's dangerous everything like the stakes are heightened all the time mm-hmm. so that that kind of as an excuse to sort of justify like quote unquote forgivable violence between people who love each other as therefore okay mm. because we yeah. live in a world where violence is how these characters solve problems violence is prevalent as a force in all of their lives so it kind of like it's like the show kind of thinks it can skate through these extremes of behavior because the world building supports it and i don't mm-hmm. think we have to grant that premise like i yeah, don't no, i agree think- i agree I, but I but I think that there is this sort of hurting your enemy, somebody who is your enemy that you understand as an enemy, they understand you as an enemy, is fundamentally different from the intimate violence right. of people in close, loving, right. you know, even domestic relationships to each other. Especially if that violence isn't addressed again, which like yes. you know, like with, with Bellamy and Octavia, it's like and and maybe, I don't know, because because it was sort of part of like the long downward spiral of Octavia, maybe part of her rebuilding is like we actually maybe will get the conversation about that and that kind of yeah. textual amends that we've been waiting for and didn't get in season three. But in this situation, because we glossed straight through it and right back to that these people deeply, deeply love each other yeah. and and Maddie is just calmly and wisely trying to explain to Clark that she's wrong. It's like, okay, so we're never going to reckon with this then yeah. like it like we're just so we're just gonna act like it never happened which makes right. me wonder why it happened at all in the first place right right exactly <laughs> like i'm i'm sort of mentally filing this like like for me i'm filing this next to like you know like the slap which i will never not think was stupid or like what yeah. happened to callie cartwig and is it weird that kane and abby are in a relationship and like no one ever talks about callie <laughs> you know like like things <laughs> yeah. happen on this show where you're just sort of like that's such a like out of left field, random aberration and how I believe that you want us to understand that this character operates, that yeah. like, I'm kind of just going to be like, mm, that didn't happen. However, I will say, <laughs> like, and I think it's important to articulate in the hopes that Jason and the writers listen to this podcast, like, we know lots of people for whom, like, this is not something that they are able to get past. Like I like yep. I know a lot of people who are like, is this a show I can continue watching if they're gonna be presenting Clark the protagonist, even in her lowest moment, even in her worst, shittiest, rock bottom, falling apart moment, that she effectively ceases to be the Clark Griffin that we have known and loved for five seasons and becomes like an actual monster. For like 30 seconds. And mm-hmm. then goes back to being Clark again. Mm-hmm. Anyone for whom, for their own reasons, because of whatever this brings up, however it landed for them, for whom this is like, you can't bring me with you over this line. Like, I can't. This is it. Like, I do not blame those people. I think it lands no, differently either. for different people. For yeah. me, I think if you subtract it from the story, 
I really liked the rest of where Clark's journey went, which makes it, like you said, like all the more infuriating that we right. even have to be having this conversation. But it really does feel like uh, certainly a betrayal of Clark's relationship with Maddie. But I also feel like it feels like a betrayal of the audience's relationship with Clark. You know, like I, I agree. Get, no, I totally like, agree. Like yeah. you can, you can absolutely convince me that Clark spent six years alone with no one for company except this one person and the the totality of her entire life experience over that time was about like this person their relationship keeping this kid safe building a life for them together like we didn't see those years but we're given the shorthand to understand why they mattered so much and yeah there's a lot that you can convince me of in her sort of like parental desperation causing her to make desperate and short-sighted choices to protect maddie you know some of them like and we'll circle back to mcquery like some of them i think just don't plain old don't work as plot but like Mm -hmm. as as a character like you know mama bear clark i actually really like a lot and i i don't mind the fact that we've been watching over the past couple of episodes the rift growing between what she thinks is best for Maddie and what Maddie actually wants and what Maddie thinks is best. I'm interested in that story. I think a lot of that story works. And I think that landing at a place where Clark is willing to do things that are absolutely crazy and is just not listening to anybody and has to kind of hit that rock bottom and be reminded, you know, we can we can hop over to this next to the sort of the like the echo Maddie Lexa kind of that whole scene of it. But I think that my read on that is that the work that that scene is doing is reminding Clark that she's not being Clark and that the flip that we get the sort of the pivot that she goes through at the end that kind of parallels Octavia's is that we begin to get the old Clark back and I think all of that works and lines up really really nicely and is very viscerally satisfying if the shot collar scene never happened you know I agree. yeah that trajectory in this episode I think is clear and it works yes minus the shot collar with right. the shot collar doesn't work at all <laughs> yeah so we're, we're left in this place where it's like this thing happened I know they're never going to address it satisfactorily because they yeah. they raced right past it in this episode and if it didn't leave lasting consequences for Maddie 20 minutes later we're not going to get him in season six so right. like, <laughs> I don't really know what to do with that except to say that I feel like it does take away from some of what should be a, the kind of like fist pumping triumphant joy of finally seeing real Clark who balances the needs of all the people in her life and all the people that she's trying to help and save and all and and leading with her head and her heart and not being just this kind of like single-minded one-track mind version of her that we've been sort of increasingly watching becoming like more and more and more of a hot mess of a human being as she keeps doing things that make less and less sense you know (laughs) I do think that like it takes away from what I imagine they wanted to feel like a cheerworthy moment at the end you know, when she like gives Maddie her blessing and lets her go with Echo and stays behind to be part of the battle squad again for the first time mm-hmm. working with them, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. because we're kind of like, yeah, but also like, <laughs> you know, the worst thing we've ever seen you do, maybe one of the worst things we've ever seen a protagonist character on this show do just happened. And we're all still kind of like, what was I supposed to make of that? So I think if, if what we're supposed to make of that is like, what are you going to do? Moms are unhinged. That's its own problem. That's not, yeah, I mean, I was going to say, like, I think, like, for me, like, that that sort of, like, triumphant, yay, Clark is back moment. Like I said, that when I was watching the episode on Tuesday night for the first time, 
did not land for me at all. But mm. It was completely mm. overshadowed and destroyed yeah. Yeah. by the, the shot caller thing. The second time through, I was more like prepared to be like, that's a thing that happens there that I'm going to just kind of like compartmentalize for now and look at the rest of it. And then it, and then the rest of it worked, you know, like it was like, the rest of it was like a fine trajectory. Like that, mm. that scene mm-hmm. with, Maddie and Clark or and uh, Echo worked great, you know, but yeah, it, like it was really <laughs> the first time it was really ruined. And I think, you know, all of my friends who, you know, are fans of the show and who are mothers are the ones who yeah. like absolutely mm-hmm. just like, mm-hmm. you know, who just like, like, like cannot deal, you know, like, and mm-hmm. I think for a lot of them, it's the, it's a combination of the horror of watching this happen to, you know, a child of the age that a lot of them have, you know, like sort of 12 mm-hmm. year old kind of ish child. But also part of it is that feeling of sort of anger and frustration of feeling like the show is telling them, like you said, like, well, when kids are in danger, moms go crazy and they do crazy things because they're all like, no, I fucking don't. You know, like, I will never, I would never hurt my child no mm. matter what. Like, like, don't tell me that being a mom means that in that situation, I would shock my child because I absolutely wouldn't. And I've had a lot mm. of my my mom friends say, like, it really upsets me that the show is kind of acting like, well, mom, you know, like being a mom just means like you become irrational because they're like, no, when my kid is in trouble, like I am never more rational than in that moment. You know, like when my kid's safety and well-being is on the line, I don't act rashly because it's too important. And so mm-hmm. for the show to kind of like, I think like, I think part of the problem is this, this will segue into kind of like my, my bigger issues with Clark's character arc and what they've done with her this season. Cause I think this is not just like, this stuff is not just this episode issue, although it kind of like culminates in this episode. I think there's that maybe the problem is there's a kind of like, there's two things happening with Clark. One of them is that she was the like the only person, like literally the only person that she had for six years was Maddie. So that there's a kind of intensity and codependency of her relationship with Maddie that is unique. You know, and that and that is kind of alluded to, I think, in the ways that they parallel Clark and Maddie with the Blakes, the earlier yes, season Blakes. Yes. You know, and, and Clark with Bellamy in terms of like her kind of being able to look at him and say, and like, and sort of reflecting on like, she sees who he used to be in herself now in that like she, but the important thing there seems to be like that sort of relationship develops. This is not like a normal familial relationship. This is like an extreme situation relationship, you know, Mm -hmm. where like extreme, like different kinds of extremes, but the end part of it is that you wind up with a situation where you have somebody who is sort of like unable, sort of like psychologically dependent on this person in a way that's like really kind of unhealthy and, and extreme and it produces this kind of extreme behavior. So there's that side of it with the, you know, the side of it where like, this is a story about Clark being, you know, isolated for so long and having only Maddie for so long and just like not really being able to cope with, <laughs> you know, the kind of transition very well. And then there's the other side of things where the narrative kind of over and over and over again keeps labeling that behavior as just like, oh, well, Clark's a mom now. So that's what did it. Mm-hmm. Like what mm-hmm. changes that is that Clark became a mom. So there's this weird sort of way of like there's there's a bunch of stuff that's very specifically happening with Clark. And then there's this other part of it is like mama bears, mama bear gonna mama bear, you know, like this is what it means to be a mom. And I think those two sort of lines of narrative, those two sorts of like pieces 
are not clearly demarcated, you know, so it winds up being and and the part that get much more play textually was the mama bear part, the like, Mm -hmm. Clark is a mom, moms are gonna fight for their babies thing. And not the sort of like, this is about Clark and Maddie specifically, and the relationship that emerged from them being each other's only person and entire world for six years. Mm-hmm. And the the latter is what really sort of works in this episode as being sort of like, this is the end point, the kind of like resolution and catharsis of that, like that like the Clark and Maddie for six years kind of like thing, like that so works here. The Mama Bear stuff is I think where it gets a little off. Like that's where it, that's that's the stuff that's that I've heard from like I said, my friends who are moms and the people I know who have like a serious problem with like Mama Bear Clark as a storyline. That's the issue that they have is they feel like mm. the way it's been presented is like trying to say something about like motherhood across like motherhood as motherhood, you know, like motherhood is just a right. universal experience that they feel like is like really, really untrue and kind of like sexist and uns- and insulting and also like just straight up sort of like disturbing <laughs> you know right. when it gets like when it sort yeah, of rises and, to the point of the shocking scene separating in this, it from in this the, episode yeah and separating it from the fact that it's like it's a specific it's a specific thing that's happening to these specific people because of the particular circumstances of their relationship you know and yeah yeah and that has a lot to do with Clark being isolated from Everybody else, not just for six years, but even after they all come back together, together, that she remains isolated in a storyline that is largely about Maddie and about protecting Maddie and, you know, protecting Maddie at the expense of other people. Yeah, and, you know, and of, I think, balancing, you know, it's like this version of Clark all this season has still been, she's still the same Clark that she was for six years with nobody else but Maddie. And that, to me, is really sad because, like, her people are back, you know? Yeah. Like, her mom is here, and Bellamy's here, and Raven is here. I think that's the thing that I've been frustrated about with Clark is that Clark, I think, feels like she's sort of stagnated up until this episode. You know, Mm -hmm. like, she's been just stuck, like you said, in the same person you know, at the beginning in the in the beginning of the the season, they spent so much time very carefully showing us how important you know, like the space crew people still are to Clark. She t- she told Maddie about them. She talks about them. She think thought about them. She wanted them to come back. You know, all this stuff. And then for almost the entire season, that went nowhere. You know, like Clark has not had a significant relationship with basically with almost anyone but Maddie and Bellamy all season. You know, she had like mm-hmm. she had like one one or two very nice scenes with Monty. She didn't even see Raven until until this one. Yeah. And then and then that was just a kind of like like a like she's pointing a gun at them and Raven's like, yeah, and like neither of them are happy to see each other and there's like no acknowledgement. You know, like I mean, I guess like like Raven acknowledges like six years and now we're here. But I think it like that kind of speaks to I think that's like a huge I think that's a huge problem when you have your protagonist character who has like no significant relationships that they've put any time into other than like two people because not even Abby like Abby wasn't even an active thing for Clark until the very end here and mm-hmm. only one of them like Matt and like only Bellamy is, is a, like a long-standing relationship you know so she's just like so completely isolated as a character and emotionally and even kind of in story I think when like when your protagonist spends an entire season like that, I think it starts to become a problem. And 
And honestly, it's not even one season because the, Clark has had this problem. She had this problem in season four. And she had the same sort of isolation problem in season three. So like it's been several seasons that Clark has not really had. Like when Clark says my friends, it's like, who the hell do you mean? You know, mm-hmm. like who yeah. are your friends? Yeah. When was the last time they spent more than half a second establishing that Clark actually cares about any of these people and anything other than the abstract. And like, even in this season, it's still abstract because all we know, all we know is Maddie saying like, you told a story, she told us stories. We don't hear anything from Clark. We don't see any, like there was a nice little scene at the very beginning with Raven, but no follow-up. I think like there's a bunch of sort of like problems with Clark's, like the narrative that Clark has been in, the way that she's been sort of like built as a character or broken down as a character that I feel like sort of all came to a head in this episode in a way that really made it hard for me at first to feel the kind of catharsis in that scene with Maddie and Echo that I wanted to feel and that they wanted Mm. me to feel like I got there. And it like no knock whatsoever on Eliza Taylor or Lola Flannery or uh, uh, Tessie Tellez or, or even, or even Justine Gilmer for like, like that is a beautifully written scene. It's beautifully written, beautifully acted. I mean, everything about that scene is just like top of their game work, but it didn't land for me as deeply as I wanted it to. And I feel like it should have, I think because of some sort of like miscalculations they made with how they got Clark to that moment. Yeah. And in this episode, like that, one of those miscalculations was the shock, shocking scene. But over the course of the season, I think one of the miscalculations was was just isolating Clark, you know, it was just kind of boiling everything down to Mm -hmm. Bellamy and Maddie and that's it. And keeping her separate from all those other people for so long and not allowing Clark to really have a moment where she got to reestablish a relationship with almost anyone. Like she had a kind of like nice scene with Monty, but even that was like almost immediately broken when, you know, they killed Cooper and Monty was like, peace out, I'm done, you know? Right. So talking about that, that scene, the, the Echo Maddie Clark scene, we'll get, I'll get my gripes out of the way so that then we can talk about, then I can do the flailing. Because like, mm-hmm. ultimately I do love that scene. Again, it's a gorgeous scene. I adore it as a Bullark shipper. So like, I want to flail about that for a while, but I, I still sort of like, like I said, it did not land the way that I think that it, that it ought to have by all rights for a bunch of reasons. When you and I were talking about this on Tuesday night and, and Wednesday, like I was really, really upset about this episode at first. Like I really just like, I went, I got to the end when I first finished watching this episode on Tuesday night I was like I would like I remember sort of feeling like I hate I hate that episode and I hate everything about it even though at the same time I was also like but it did make me cry a couple of times and there was some mm-hmm. really great stuff but I was just like but one of the things I was really like I just like this scene didn't land and I was really kind of just like frustrated by it and one of the things that helped was like you sort of talking me through it and pointing out, like, you know, look, one of the reasons why this ha- the scene happens the way that it did is because at this point, you know, like, Lexa through Maddie is kind of the only person who can get through to Clark at this moment. Clark, who's so, like, so lost and broken. Like, she's, you know, and the other thing, like, the, the scene finally kind of opens up to us how broken Clark was by the thought that she was responsible for Bellamy's death, you know? And so, like, mm-hmm. her finding out that he was alive kind of turned things around. And you're like... Like, Lexa through Maddie was, like, really the only person who can kind of get to Clark emotionally at that moment and, like, get her to turn around. And I think that that's, I think that that's right. I think that's actually, I think that's true. But I think on a kind of, like, in a bigger picture way, 
It's really, really not a good sign when you've gotten your character to a point where the only character who can get through to her that she can have like a that kind of emotionally cathartic scene with is a character who's literally been dead for two and a half seasons. Yeah. A relation, a character that she will never, like that, that character relationship, it's not going anywhere. You know, like that, having that conversation with Lexa doesn't open anything up. It pulls Clark into the past and then she can move to the future. But it doesn't actually like develop any of her current living relationships or move those relationships to a new point where we're like, okay, like for instance, I feel like that cathartic sort of argument conversation, a version of that could have happened with Raven that also would Mm -hmm. have worked to get Clark to the same point. Mm-hmm. But also would have done work to sort of like redevelop Clark's relationships with living characters who are still alive and will continue to have relationships with her, mm-hmm. as well as sort of develop, here's what these people meant to her. Here's where Clark was sort of like, here's where they kind of like ran into difficulty reconnecting with each other. Here's the baggage that they have to work through. Here's how they move forward now. You know, like there's a kind right. of like living arc that could have happened if Clark had had this cathartic scene with Raven or somebody like that, that is just not possible if she's talking basically to Lexa through Maddie. Yeah. And to me, that just feels like, again, like it was a beautiful scene. It was very cathartic and moving. No knocks against Justine Gilmer's writing, which is gorgeous. But I think as a kind of overall narrative choice made by the entire team of writers that were like, we're going to get like Clark to a point where the only person that she can talk to is Lexa. I think that's a huge mistake. And I think, I think it's a huge problem and does a disservice to Clark as a character. I think it really, really, really hamstrings and kind of like cripples, emotionally cripples their protagonist in a way that is not actually, that is far less effective to the show overall than I think it could have been. And that part of it to me is still frustrating. Yeah, no, I agree. I think what I liked about, I think it it landed for me like something, I think something's the same and something's different in terms of our different like interpretations. But what I, what I liked about that was I felt like, okay, so what this, what this scene is making clear is like, this is sort of definitively kind of laying out for us once and for all that like, we were never supposed to be in support of these kind of increasingly unhinged decisions that Clark was making. And we're hearing somebody kind of like textually address to her, you are not being Clark right now. You know, like, yeah, for sure. I don't know who you are. I don't know. Like, I don't know what crazy shit you're doing, but like, like this isn't you and you have to go back to sort of like revert to a previous version of yourself or or remember in like remembering like the worst, you know, one of the worst, most horrible moments of her whole life, you know, and like being like left holding the bag at Mount Weather and being reminded that like that's essentially what she had just done to Bellamy, you know, and right, and that right, she knows right. from having been on that side of it, like how that feels. So I thought all of that worked and I and I liked it as sort of a like because the place where I've been struggling over the course of the season with Clark is not always being sure. I think because of the kind of like mama bear framing, a lot of which I really like, not always being sure like, am I supposed to think that this was a good idea? You know, like am I supposed to believe yeah. that that Clark made a choice that was the right choice, or am I supposed to believe everybody else, including Maddie, who's telling her don't do this? You know, and sometimes it's obvious, you know, like like leaving Gaia and Indra and Bellamy to die in the fighting pit, and sometimes it's less clear, like, what did you think was going to happen making a deal with McCreary? Like, there's just sort right? of an ambiguity, like, <laughs> like I don't, and like, like am I supposed to- stupid. <laughs> right, right, like, I, mm, question mark. So for me, I, I felt like I was glad to have it confirmed that, like, 
okay, what you're telling us now, you know, one step before the finale is that the whole trajectory of Clark's journey, you know, over the course of this season has been, you know, much like Octavia's, like a downward spiral. And mm-hmm. and that all of these things we are supposed to sort of see as like, like even though they came out of love and, and a definitely like a healthier love than Octavia's, but still like a inherently kind of troubled codependent relationship. Mm-hmm. But that that we were sort of meant all along to see this as like, you know, like this isn't you. These aren't the things that you're supposed to be doing. The choices that you're making are like sometimes they are forgivable because they come out of this place of love, but it isn't like good parenting and it isn't being who you are. So on that level, I felt like it worked for me as a way to sort of be like, okay, so now we're sort of teeing up the like now we're getting to the pivot. You know, like now we're mm-hmm, hearing mm-hmm. we're hearing it like articulated, like you've been here before. In the opposite situation, like, you know that you don't want to be, you know, that person. Uh-huh. I did also like, you know, on the on the level of sort of like plot closure, you know, I think one of my frustrations with the beginning of season three was feeling like, you know, Lex's abandonment of Clark at Mount Weather as a mistake, like, like, not just like as a thing that like impacted her relationship with Clark, human being to human being, but like as like a as like a catastrophic failure of leadership and and yeah. a like... And, and an act of, like, cowardice that, like, isn't who Lexa wanted to be and isn't how she saw herself and had, like, ongoing, like, aftershocks and ramifications and made it harder for her to kind of, like, hold this tenuous alliance together, broke trust with, like, all the clans. Like, I remember, like, all through season three, like, wanting more of that fallout and feeling like mm-hmm. a lot of that was kind of glossed over. So I found it I found it satisfying on a plot level to hear sort of an acknowledgement from Lexa of the fact that, like, you know, that this was this was a mistake that was like, this is that she remembers this is the worst thing she ever did. You know, I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, so that's a that's sort of bringing that piece, I think, full circle. I, you know, I liked. Yeah, I will. I will just say one more thing on on that. I think, mm-hmm. like, I agree with you that I'm I do sort of like finally the kind of a sort of like, yes, that was a bad decision. And that was a mistake. Like it's, it is nice to hear that, but I will, I will just say, and this is before like shifting into like high key, like Bullark flailing about how much I loved the sort of thrust of this scene. I will just say that I do think it's kind of like just as a writing choice, I'm like relitigating something that happened at the end of season two. At the end of season five? Mm. Yeah. I just feels like, I I don't like it as a choice. I'm like, really, are we going all the way back there? Like, that was a long fucking time ago, both in real life and in the show. I I, I know why they did it. I'm just sort of like, like, I don't know. I, yeah, I, just, no, I think I just think, I think that's fair. if I had my druthers, like I think, do we have to really kind of like go that far into the past for this? I have some, mm-hmm. I have some big reservations about both that as a choice, and then also like building Clark as a character to a point where like that was even necessary. But anyway, yeah, no, I think I think that's totally fair. I yeah. think that it, it it worked for me as sort of like okay, the thing that needs to happen in this moment is somebody needs to remind Clark who she is, and it can't be Maddie the child as a child because this whole episode has been about how Clark doesn't listen to her, so. So, mm-hmm. and and because like you said like they sort of like they've burned every other bridge Lexa is who's left so I so I think and I hear what you're saying that I think the fact that Clark is isolated to a degree where the only person left who can get through to her is you know the sort of like the fragments of Lexa's memory that live inside this flame makes me really sad for the isolation of Clark 
even though it was a scene that I was like, I, this is really lovely and a lot of it really works for me. But I, I do think that like to your point of like the larger problem of it to me, I think, is that what I wanted out of season five after all the groups came back together was like a reintegration of Clark into those relationships with all of these other mm-hmm. people. Yeah. And I felt like they sort of implied that as a thing that was happening and then kind of kept shifting around where she kind of kept getting pulled into storylines where Maddie was still like where Lola is still her primary a scene partner in all circumstances whatever else is happening and and it made me wish that she was even if she was in conflict with them that she was at least sort of with them but I will say and this is a good segue to what I what I can feel you getting kid up to talk about I will say (laughs) I fucking forgot I literally forgot until that confrontation that she had with Echo that she thought Bellamy was dead and actually at that point that makes a lot of her fuck it nobody else matters except my kid like in hindsight that makes some of the stuff from the last episode or two make more sense like the the sort of like like leaving him behind in Polis was really bad mm-hmm. and doing that with her knowing like I'm probably leaving him behind to die because that's how pissed I am that he put the flame in my kid so then from that point on it's like she's sort of living like a you know like a mini version of like him at the end of the previous season like she's convinced that he's dead you know and she handles it totally differently it makes a little bit I think it was context where I was like if I had remembered that I might have read the last stuff differently because I had compl- I was like oh it was like why is she talking about him in the past tense I was like that's kind mm-hmm. of shady he loved you <laughs> it was just like cl- and I was like oh wait no I'm the dumb one um so yeah. so that well, no, I, I think-, think I think that's actually another issue is that I I I don't think it was ever 100% clear that Clark really believed, like, she knew that he might die, but she didn't know, she didn't, I don't think it was ever 100% clear that she thought he was dead. Yeah, like, and when, when Maddie brought it up, it was like, you left them behind, you left them behind, you, like, you left them behind. Yeah, to it was die. like, they, ne- like Maddie, Maddie needling, but we never got a moment hmm. where, like, we never got, like, I think it works as an interpretation, and 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 we'll launch into this into a second, uh, into this in a second, where, you know, like, Clark thinks Bellamy is dead, and that's a huge piece of what's motivating her, but... Again, and like another, I think, sort of like way that their writing of Clark's sort of emotional, psychological state in the last few episodes has kind of fallen down a little bit is that that was still guesswork. You know, like we haven't right, we didn't right, really get yeah. like we never got to see a moment like if that's if that's what Clark believed and that's like sort of part of her part of Clark's sub cost fallacy is sort of like I can like if I need to be a monster to save my child, I'll be a monster to save my child because nothing else matters because like I just let the other person in the world that I love most besides my mom die. So like fuck it. Mm-hmm. You know? But then what was missing was some moment where we really got to see that you know like Bellamy yeah. being I shouldn't have been able to forget Clark. that that was true <laughs> exactly literally exactly that's what I'm saying like if like if you forgot yeah. like that's a problem but right. anyway <laughs> so enough griping about like the massive issues with the setup let's just talk about how this entire scene like this actually this I find this scene kind of hilarious because like you know like on the one hand you have Mr. Jason I don't like love triangles Rothenberg all being like I don't like love triangles we don't do love triangles and then on the other hand you have this scene that's like literally two love triangles colliding you have like right. Bellamy and Echo and Clark and Clark and Lexa and uh, Bellamy and then like they're both happening in some form simultaneously in the scene and the entire point of the scene is Clark loves Bellamy so, so, so very, very much. <laughs> right? <laughs> Let's just like hammer home over and over and over again how much Clark loves Bellamy. It's a lot. Um, it is a lot. So, <laughs> 
so like so now we enter the part of this where I like I'm gonna take all of that all of my Clark beefs and put them in the box and close the box and shove them over there and now we open the box called Belark Flails where we just <laughs> talk about what the scene means about like well the scene is conveying about you know how Clark feels about Bellamy and from that perspective I fucking love this scene <laughs> <laughs> I knew you would. I knew I was like, I have a fix for this. I can make her feel better. <laughs> because like, I mean, like, I, and I feel a little bit bad because I, I mean, I don't know if bad is the right word. Like, maybe it's more like I feel like I should feel bad. Because like, the you know, we get this confrontation between Echo and Clark. And like, Echo's function in that scene is to be the person sitting there being like, you know, just needling her being like, you act like you care, you don't really care. And then like, I mean, okay, so like, so we get confirmation that Clark is sort of like, you know, she cares about Bellamy enough that she doesn't want Echo to die if she can help it out of like, as a way of honoring Bellamy's memory. You know, she's (laughs) like, he loved you and you seem to have been good for him and he's good for you. So like, since he loved you and he wouldn't have wanted you to die, I don't really want you to die. Like, I don't give a shit about you, but like, Bellamy loved you. Therefore, I will do this for Bellamy, which is like already huge. But like the, the whole thrust of that scene was to get them to the point where Echo says to Clark, he's not dead. Like, he didn't die in Polis. Last Mm. time I knew he was alive. And the way that Clark's little face just, like, lights up. Like, (gasps) everything changes in the moment that she realizes that he's not dead. Mm -hmm. Like, you can see just, like, the part of her that died when she thought she had killed him just, like, springs back to life. Mm -hmm. And her entire perspective on on everything changes. And there's a part of me that, like, that's a little bit, like... (laughs) Like, feels like I should feel worse that, you know, Echo, who is still canonically in a relationship with Bellamy, is only there for Clark to be like, oh my god, this, like, I, I'm so happy he's alive and it, and it makes me feel like I can be a human being again, that I didn't kill this person that I love. And to have that sort of confrontation of like, oh, you, you care about Bellamy now and have, you know, Clark say like, I always cared about him. Like, the whole sort of thrust of that was, again, Clark loves Bellamy. And now Echo knows it. And there's a piece of me that's sort of like, ah, that kind of sucks for you, Echo, because this is like the most classic love triangle setup for a scene between like the two women in the like woman, woman, man, heterosexual love triangle. (laughs) Although I did, you know, I did like that, you know, when they like their their very last little kind of parting moment, like where she says, go save him, which was just... Delightful. Yeah. Um, and then, and then Echo looks at her, like, and Echo has that kind of tiny little, there's like a tiny little smile of a like, all right, we're good, like, we're good, bitch. Like, I, li- I like that little yeah. moment where it was just kind of yeah. like, like, we're on the same team, you know? And I, yes, I think that like, leave, leaving in a way where it didn't feel like it's love triangle in structure, but not in emotional content. Yeah. Not, not like the, not like the gross love triangle way where it's like, yeah. Now we both know that we both love Bellamy and therefore we're in competition and we hate each other. It's more like, right. Like, yeah. Like when Echo realizes that Clark also loves Bellamy, she's like, okay, all right, we can be allies. Mm. You know, right, right, exactly. Yeah. We both want him, like, think he's the best and want him to live. So, okay. Right. All right. I can watch your kid, you know, like, I can make yeah. sure that this person that you love stays alive. You're going to help make sure that the person we both love stays alive. We're cool. We're friends. You know, yes. like, that was like, it's a nice, it's like a way better sort of like, we are, we are, like, this shared love that we have for this person brings mm-hmm. us together rather than, right. like, breaking us apart. Yeah. So, yeah. We've, we've been waiting a long time for, you know, knowing from, because there was screen caps of it from, you know, a long time ago that, like, 
a scene between Clark and Echo that was fraught with some kind of very deep emotion. It was going to go down. And, and I think there was a lot of like, there's a lot of things it could be. Some of them are very not good. <laughs> What's going to happen? Um, yeah. And and by and large, I, I liked it. I liked that what it was about, even though, like you said, like it was, it was very much sort of triangulated around, you know, around Bellamy, around Clark's recognition that Echo's relationship with Bellamy is a real relationship that made them both better, and that mm-hmm. you know that, that that they loved each other. I think is really significant. You know, I think it was it was nice in a you know, in a love triangle forestalling way to hear out of Clark's mouth, like a validation, like this relationship's really significant. You know, like a person who yeah. I, who's very important to me, you are very important to him. And so, like you said, like, so in her short-term self-interest, you know, like letting McCreary shoot Echo in the head might have saved her some hassle of what she sort of perceived at the time her problem was, which is mm-hmm. someone's trying to kidnap my baby, you know? Yeah. Um, and and that she was only capable of getting to the place that she has to get to to sort of rejoin the squad because she let Echo live and, you know, and through that learned both like Bellamy's alive and also like there is still hope. Like there is still a chance to mm-hmm. save both him and all the other people. You know, and Echo's sort of throwing throwing Raven in back in her face too. You know, like yeah. it's not just – it isn't just that Bellamy's going to die. It's that like, you know – they're going to torture Raven to make that happen. Yeah, and I and I liked so I think something that I thought was cool about that conflict between, you know, the two of them is like like of everybody in Space Crew, even including Amori, like of all of them, Echo is the one who has the least personal relationship with Clark, the real person. You know, like like Echo like respected the sort of the myth of Clark that kept them all going up there, you know. Mm-hmm. Um but it was kind of neat to sort of see, and I think particularly as sort of a precursor to to the to the Lexa piece that happened, you know, second. But it sort of begins in some way with Echo, like to have, you know, have Echo look at her and be like, "Wow, you're a disappointment." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, yeah. Like to have Echo <laughs> be like, "I spent six fucking years with this guy talking about how you were the best fucking leader." You know, uh-huh. like, like yeah. I lived with the myth of Clark, the like, the person who could get her people out of any, like, who would, like, she says, like, you know, who would do anything for her people. That's the version who made of Clark. Bellamy who he became in space. You yes, know, like, exactly. Of her, trying to live up to her example. Yeah. yeah, trying to like that his her sort of like what he kind of perceived almost as her like dying words to him in some way. Yeah, was like yeah. be be this kind of person, and he became that. And I would argue that like. This season, like, Bellamy is the least problematic character. <laughs> like, like Bellamy's oh become, God, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like every episode, like, no matter what happens, I'll, almost always, I'm just like, whatever Bellamy says, just do that, you guys. Like, yeah. <laughs> like he's the one person I feel like I almost always agree with. <laughs> you know? Yep. And, um, Him and Monty are just sort of yes. like guys, just like, just like ditch everyone else and yeah. go, like, They're grab the that algae and run. <laughs> only two people who should be in charge of anything, you know? Seriously. Um, so, so I liked, I liked that kind of implicit reminder that, that this in its own way is also kind of like a, a nifty little parallel to Lexa and the idea of ghosts, you know, like, like the idea of, of like yeah. the, the myth of a person who is dead that you hold on to because it gives you some kind of comfort obscuring the reality 
of who that person really is and was, you know? So like the sort of the, the myth of Lexa, the sort of memory of Lexa that both sort of we, the show and Clark, the character hold on to, you know, like getting to hear sort of textual recognition on Lexa's part of awareness of how destructive the thing was that she did and how Mm -hmm. much it harmed both her relationship with Clark and with her people, you know, like that's a contrast to the sort of, the way that she exists sort of to the world of the show of like the commanders as these kind of like almost like sainted, holy kind of had no flaws people. And it's like, no, she was like a 19 year old girl doing her best who sometimes made really, really like messed up leadership choices because she was like, Mm -hmm. because she was fallible, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And I think for Echo living with this sort of the ghost of Clark, not just with, Bellamy, but with all of these people who had spent so much time with her and, and the knowledge that Clark had died to get them all to space, you know, Clark stayed behind and was yeah. killed in prime fire to save all of their lives. So there's a sort of sense of obligation to her memory. There's this sort of sense of reverence that probably for the people like Echo and Amori who had, you know, maybe not great relationships with her had had, you know, shit went down in season four between them. That was not good, but they probably felt like. They had to kind of let go of that because, you know, mm-hmm. because, because she died to save our lives. Like, how can you be mad mm-hmm. about this thing that happened? How can you resent this person because she's dead to save you? So, so I think the sort of the myth of Clark as this person who Bellamy, you know, like all the rest of them, but like Bellamy in particular, like held in such reverence that like he, he changed and became better to be the kind of leader that Clark had always believed he had the capability of being. And then Mm -hmm. Echo meets her. I mean, like, had met her before, but, like, Echo kind of, like, comes face to face with her. And, you know, and she's just, like, looking at her going, like, I don't recognize you from the version of these stories that I've lived with for six years. And in a way that I think is an interesting kind of parallel to, like, Maddie meeting Octavia, you know, or like the sort of the tension between Clark and Bellamy when they're reuniting, like Maddie meeting Abby, like with all of these reunions that happen based on, I had this picture of you in my head from these stories that were being told over and over again while we were all separated. And now I'm like, you're not the person that I thought that you were. And I'm like disappointed in you. And I thought it was interesting Mm -hmm. sort of like positioning Echo to sort of be that you know, I think kind of like in some ways, like voice of the audience of saying like, I don't know who you are, but you're not Clark Griffin. And I think that, you know, as sort of the thing that kind of propels then kind of going from there into the Lexa moment, flips her into being like, yes, okay, I have to make some different choices. But I think that it fills in some interesting backstory about everything that Echo knows about Clark is filtered through Bellamy. So of course, She's as crushed as, you know, as Bellamy or anybody else is that Clark would just leave him behind to die, you yeah, know, and, yeah. and would do it a second time, you know? So I think it, yeah. it, it gives us some interesting context of like what it must be like to be, to be Bellamy's girlfriend with sort of the ghost of Clark kind of like hanging over you and the perception that Echo had of, wow, she was this sort of amazing, heroic, noble, awesome person. And then to meet her and be like, uh, mm, <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> you know. Okay. So it was kind of like, I, like, really? it, it was like thing, things needing to get said got said, you know. And I, and I like that it ended with them sort of being like on the same team, but it was very much mm-hmm. like, like this is all code for like Bellamy talked about you literally every minute of the day. 
Morgan, I don't even know who you are. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And then and then you leave him to die. Like, really? Like, right. he doesn't even matter. Like, he didn't matter to you at all this whole time. And it sort mm-hmm. of pushes Clark to be like, no, <laughs> he mattered the most. That's why this is such a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> That's um, why I'm so fucked up. <laughs> Exactly. That's why I was just like, why might as well do every horrible thing I can think of because why not? I already did the worst thing. Um, yeah. And then I, I, I mean, I, I liked the, the first time through, I also was like a little bit sort of put off the, the sort of Maddie Lexa half of the conversation. I was still a little bit sort of like weirded out by having Lexa talk sort of like communicate to Clark through Maddie. Like I was still a little bit like, there's something fundamentally weird about like your dead ex-girlfriend talking to you through your 12-year-old foster daughter that I'm just like never that will never stop being kind of weird, you know? Mm-hmm. Um so <laughs> so like acknowledging that and sort of bracketing and putting it aside. I, I like you said I like I did I did sort of like appreciate the way that that conversation was about sort of reframing Sort of like showing us the way, the sort of like frames through which Clark had been thinking about her choices and then reframing them differently. You know, insofar as like the comparisons to Matt Weather, Clark saying like, yes, you know, like she made this deal and she, she like went back on her promise to me in order to save her people, you know, with the kind of sense of like, she did this fucked up thing, but she did it because she had to. And ultimately, that's all that that matters. And then kind of reframing that as like, you know, in the sense of like, that is not that is actually not all that matters, you know, like Mm -hmm. that, that that was choice was a mistake. And it's the thing that Lexa regrets, you know, the most bitterly, like the biggest, looking back on all the mistakes she made over her life, like, that's the biggest, that's, that's the mistake that she regrets the most. You know, I think it was really important in terms of like, that gave us a lot of information about like, the way that Clark looks at her, her the choices that she made and specifically the choice of abandoning, of leaving Bellamy behind, you know, of of sort Mm -hmm. of abandoning him at Polis where like she sees it as a betrayal. Like she does see it as it was a terrible thing that she did. It was a betrayal of trust and it was a turning her back on someone, you know, that she cared deeply for and she didn't want to do it, but she sort of told herself that it was necessary and it was the best thing. You know, so like, like kind of giving us that information about like Clark saw it as a necessary evil, but an evil, you know, like right, not right, right. she yeah. thought it was like, like she never thought it was okay. She was just like, I'm willing to make myself be this kind of person who will do this terrible thing, you know, and sort of like flipping the meaning of that to kind of say like, okay, that kind of like, but that's not worth it if it what, if what it sacrifices is your relationship with this person. Like, so I feel like it did a lot of good work, character work for Clark. And then obviously also there are like really like knock you over the head, clear parallels between like what Lexa regrets is leaving Clark at Mount Weather because she loved Clark and that was a monumental betrayal and it hurts her to have done that. Like, so there's like the leadership component of it. Like that was a bad decision, but there's also the kind of like, betraying a person you love in a really really mm-hmm. like terrible horrific way and the sort of parallel between like Lex is like don't and like you know what Maddie says is she doesn't want you to make the same mistake so the mistake right. would be turning your back on and leaving someone that you love 
to die. So there's this like direct parallel between Lexus sees Clark is making the exact same mistake about a person that she feels that Clark feels the way about that Clark, that Lexa felt about Clark, that I'm sort mm-hmm. of, that's like the most high key arc thing. Right, right, right. Like yeah. Basically it's like, it's like Lexa, you know, like for whom Clark was the love of her life, this person that she loved more than anything. The thing that she regrets is, is, you know, like a, a betraying and abandoning her and leaving her behind to possibly die. What she doesn't want for Clark is to betray the person that she loves most and leave him behind to mm-hmm. die. Like, like the sort of parallelism there is that I feel like it's a very, it's like very, very, like very much on the surface. It feels like to me where like this is about telling us what Clark feels like she's been doing and what the significance of having done that to Bellamy is for her and drawing that p- direct parallel to the significance of what Lexa did to Clark about weather to me is just like, like that's feels like very almost textual. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, that's what they're like. Lexa leaving Clark is the same as Clark leaving Bellamy. That's what they're right. saying, you know? Right. And like, and we know that Lexa leaving Clark was, a thing about romantic love. That's mm-hmm. the sort of like a piece of the regret and the betrayal. And so like the fact that they drew that line, I think was like, oh my God, like that's huge, you know, like yeah. that's like, and like very, very deliberate. And I don't know, I don't have any specific expectations for the next episode. And I, and I don't like, I really don't expect anything like a kiss or anything like that. I don't think anything, I don't expect anything like that canon to happen this season, but this is the most textual sort of signal that of Clark's feelings for Bellamy and the fact that they are not just like we're pals Mm -hmm. that we've gotten in a season that's been full of like huge moments for Clark where it's very, very clear that like Bellamy is this person that has taken on this human, like tremendous, who still, who still has this like tremendous, significance to her more than like anyone else in the world except for maddie Mm -hmm. and maddie's obviously different because like you know the way that clark loves maddie is not the way that clark loves bellamy or loved lexa you know yeah and i did think it was nice to sort of articulate just to sort of confirm that it is clear that maddie maddie is still her most important person like she loves so many people she loved lexa she loved bellamy so everyone else but it's like like you are my child and i think that like you know i think that in in fandom, there can be a sort of a temptation to conflate, you know, like the person that you love the most is like the ship, you know, and it's like, well, no, the person that you love most right. is the family member, you know, like we sort of have this conversation like in the cabbie fandom all the time. It's like Abby loves Kane. That is true. But like Clark is her child. Like we all yeah. know if she ever had to pick one of them, like who she'd pick. And that's like just like that's what it means when somebody is your I think child. Almost you know? anyone, almost and almost anyone. Yeah. Would pick their child over their partner. Yeah. Like that's just, yeah. So it like so it so it explains just how it is. Yeah. So it it explains like it. It's definitely in alignment with this version of Clark who is burning. You know, who would like would burn the you know everything to the ground to protect Maddie. But now, but like by the end of the episode, it's like that love hasn't hasn't diminished. It's just that like she's taken the step back to realize. That that she has other people that she also loves and is beholden to, and that she can't shut them out and only focus all that on Maddie because it's also not healthy for Maddie. 
Yeah, I was going to say, I think like that's also very, very like there's a there's something really important happening there, too, in terms of Clark and Maddie's relationship where where Clark is willing to sort of narrow things down to the point where Maddie hears her entire world and, and Clark is willing to sort of be like, OK, I am going to like chop off every part of me that is attached to anyone else in the world. And it's only Maddie. And like the sense of which is important that it's Maddie who's delivering this these messages to Clark and, and that, and that this is as much about Maddie as it is about Lexa or Bellamy or anybody mm-hmm. else is that sort of like, it has to be Maddie to remind Clark, not only is it okay that you love people other than me, but you need to love people other than me. You know, yes. like your yeah. world, your world needs to be bigger than me. And when you try to make it just all about me, bad things happen. Like it turns you mm-hmm. into a person you don't want to be, you shouldn't be. You do things to harm me. Like, actually, like, the the more you love, the more you allow yourself to love people and let them in and, and take care of them, the more, more that you open out, the better you are and the better you are to the people that you do love. Mm-hmm. So, so, like, it's really, really, like, Clark needs to love people other than Maddie. She yeah. needs her world, her emotional world to be bigger than that. And, like, I think that part of it had to come from Maddie. You know, like, Maddie had to be the one to yes. finally be like, look, what you think you're doing is protecting me, but but you're not on a whole bunch of levels. And not just on the level of you keep doing, like, things that I don't want and I'm actively telling you to stop doing, quote, unquote, for me, but also you're killing yourself. And that's, right. like, that's never going to make Maddie happy. That's not okay. Maddie doesn't want you to, like, destroy yourself for her any more than, like, then it was okay for Bellamy to destroy himself for Octavia. You know, so, mm-hmm. like, that kind of, like, that parallel, too, where it kind of gets to the point of, like, like, these two people this sort of have this, like, really intense, close familial relationship. But ultimately, at the end of the day, what has to happen is that the person who had been, like, I don't matter, I will sacrifice everything, every part of me for you needs to realize, like, no, in order for for that other person to be really healthy, in order for you to have a healthy relationship, you need to value yourself. Yeah. You need to... Not like, it's actually not like a romantic, wonderful thing to be like, I will do anything for you. I will, I will sacrifice my body and soul for you. Like that's, that's actually really, really bad for both of you. Yeah, <laughs> you exactly. Know? So, and, so and like, it, it was it good that we got this sort of like acknowledgement, you know, in yeah. the Clark Maddie relationship too. Yes. I think it's a nice reminder that both, both with the Blakes and with Clark and Maddie, these these relationships that they depend on so much, the reason they are the way they are is because they're forged in long-term isolation. You know, mm-hmm. like they become yep. who they become because they have one person in the entire world and one of them feels like taking care of you and keeping you alive is my entire responsibility. And also you are like my only companion and comfort and friend and family because like we just have each other. And mm-hmm. it parallels really, I think really nicely, uh, even though it's it's in a really kind of sad way with like the pivot that comes in Clark and Maddie's relationship where Clark finally realizes that she's been harming both herself and Maddie and any possibility of them ever kind of, reforging a bond that's really healthy and balanced mm-hmm. by even though she has all these other people back now by not letting any of them in you know by continuing yeah. to operate mm-hmm. as though they're alone on an alien planet with yep. just each other for company paralleling that with the grimmer but also i think like more kind of harder fought 
place that Bellamy gets to where he is willing to allow Octavia to die for him and kind of like definitively end this like, you know, like reverse and kind of complete this ongoing kind of pattern of him feeling of the sort of the, my, you know, like my sister, my responsibility, you know, like I always. And I think also like another, another important piece there is like Bellamy is willing to let Octavia die in order to get back to his family, to these other Mm -hmm. people who have become important to him. And so like him being willing to let her die, it's huge in terms of, Bellamy won't sacrifice himself for his sister anymore, but it's also huge in terms of he won't let her be his only person in his only world. He has other people and those people are important and they rely on him and they love him and he loves them. And if it's a choice between like sacrificing everything and everyone, so they all die and there's only Octavia left or Octavia dying and him getting the rest of those people, he, he like the old Bellamy would be like, everyone can die but Octavia, but the new Bellamy... Mm -hmm. He won't make that choice anymore. Yeah. Like, I think it's really important that, like, what we see of, you know, of how he changed in space is, like, he learned to love people in a healthy way. And that doesn't mean that there isn't conflict. You know, like, his love for Murphy at this point, arguably, is healthier and more balanced than his love for Octavia ever was. Yeah. Like, the way that that he learned to – Forge relationships, the, the little sort of mini society that they built up there, you know, which like significantly includes his relationship with Echo, but isn't just limited to Echo of like this group of people and their bond. Bellamy learned to have healthy relationships. You know, he learned mm-hmm. to, you know, that it was okay to like have people like take care of him. He learned that it was okay to not have to bear everything himself. He mm-hmm. learned how to like, you know, kind of like let people in emotionally. He learned what it felt like to sort of have a team and feel like feel supported in a way where he didn't have the pressure of like, what do I do about Octavia? What do I do about Octavia? Like the whole time, you know, and even though the whole time he was up there, he was motivated by this desire to get back to her, to get back to the sort of like mythological version of her that existed in his head, you know, still he learned to have healthy relationships, you know, and the the really sad thing about it is that like, you know, the two most important, you know, other people in his life that weren't in space, which is Octavia and Clark, learned like the opposite lesson in that time. Yeah. You know, like they, he returned to them as they, as people who were not capable of being in the kind of relationship with him that he would like to have with them, where there is like mutuality and support and like, you know, I help you. So you help me because we're a team and that's what we do. You know, Clark and Octavia can't give him that at the beginning. They have to work through a lot of shit to get to that point. I think, you know, Clark, I think we see her get there. Like she gets there in this episode Mm -hmm. and Octavia has farther to go. So we see her like take the step, you know, like we see her make the sacrifice. We haven't seen her live with it long term we see her take what you said like you said you know before like in some ways the easy way out of just like letting him shoot her yeah and the hard work of rebuilding with bellamy will come later which i'm very excited to see but i do feel like you know i think it's really beautiful that like we've watched him grow up like those six years really turned him into a really like a good leader you know like he really did manage to nail the kind of holistic head heart balance but he's drawing like he's drawing healthy emotional boundaries you know and um, and and so is the more i'm just like every moment where we have somebody drawing healthy emotional boundaries makes so happy me so happy yes exactly 
and Amoria has done it and Monty has done it and Harper mm-hmm. has done it. And I'm just like, I'm so proud of you guys. Like, I know. I'm more You're proud learning of and you growing. For, learning, for doing that than anything else you've ever done on this show. Like it just yes. makes me so happy. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Like you're going like, to be okay. Maddie also, remarkably, Maddie also has very good emotional yeah. memories. You know, which I think speaks to like, like Clark apparently is a very good parent. Like she's, she's got some sort of attachment issues, but like Maddie actually seems to be doing quite well in terms of being like, I have my boundaries, mom. And like, I need yeah. to enforce them. So that's good. I will, um, we probably should move on to cabbie stuff now, but I will say like, I am a little bit, I am excited. Like the fact that, that Clark is going to the ship to make sure it doesn't take off. I mm-hmm. hopefully what that means is that we get another scene with her and Raven where we get some reconciliation, yes. you know, like yeah, she yeah, comes yeah. in to like save them, apologize. Yeah. And, and Raven has, you know, like they have a little like cathartic moment. So I'm like, I'm hopeful that that's happening since, since we will have Clark and Raven in the same place there. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So that, that makes it, I do feel like, like is the kind of like moment where they saw each other again here was like very like, wah, wah. And yeah, things, I was you like, know, like we mm. talked about in, indicative of sort of like some, some ways where Clark has disappointingly gotten more isolated in the season where we hope we we were hoping that like her two season long isolation would end the season, but like I feel like we'll get some good payoff next week. Hopefully. Yes, yeah, I think if the if the first moment that they sort of saw each other after like being apart for six years happened at the sort of like uh, at the lowest low point of Clark's kind of unspooling in this episode, then I think. You know, her doing something in the next episode to save Raven feels like a necessary next step for them to begin rebuilding. And I really, really hope that their relationship gets worked on in the next episode slash season two, because that was that was another piece of the sort of a very specific kind of element of this isolation that I just really felt. It was the absence that we felt, you know, like I that yes. I wanted mm-hmm. to. You know, we we came in with high hopes for how all these groups were going to coalesce. And I think it is noteworthy that there are people in episode 12 who are meeting for the first time. Yeah, I think so, too. Okay. So, Cabby! Cabby! So, like, so now is when we get finally, I think, to the McCreary problem. Yes. Which, like, it, we, we we talked about the issue with Clark in a, the last couple of episodes where it was sort of, like, it was never clear why Clark decided that Mercury was, like, her safest or best option. So, like, the Mercury problem is there's, like, this huge plot hole in the last few episodes where we have three characters, Clark, Kane, and Dioza, who, like, trust McCreary and decide to decide with McCreary for reasons that are never clear and that are like really predictably go wrong really fast in ways yeah. that absolutely everyone should see coming. And that certainly those three characters who are not dumb, you know, and who are usually strategically very savvy and who know him see coming. Yeah, exactly. Like, especially Dioza, who knows him, right? Like she knows. So I was really disappointed, you know, that the double cross turned out to be genuine. Like, not just because, like, I didn't want Kane to have betrayed all his people, but also because, like, I was just like, well, that can't be, like, a real thing because that would be so stupid. And then it was a real thing. And I was like, and it, well, I know I was so that that was that was one of my one of my lowest low points of the whole episode was like, because like, like we talked about last time, like I was convinced you know, because we had, like, there was that moment between Echo and Dioza where Echo said, like, 
well, do you have a better plan? What's your plan? And then we kind of cut yeah. to like Dioza making her kind of like, I do have a plan face. And then we didn't see them again until they were like walking aboard the ship. So it's like, okay, so this is how you use film to tell a story of like, we had a plan. It's not revealed to us, but the next thing that we see is that plan. So I was like, cool, I'm not worried. And then it was like, wait, no. So what happened was like, she gave Echo that little smile and then turned around and was like, okay, so I'm going to just like stab you in the back for reason. Like, I was just like, I don't understand. What were they trying to convey to Yoza's thought process? Like, she's like, yeah, I got a plan. I'm going to trust the person that I know is a loose cannon who can't be trusted to be a completely different person than I've ever known him right. to be. In the entire 100 years that I've known him. <laughs> yeah, my, my plan is, bye! Like, <laughs> like what? <laughs> so the thing that, that bugged me about this particular handoff of the idiot ball to Kane, poor Kane, who like, he's got a fairly idiot ball free season. And then it was like, I guess they just yeah. had to... They had to give it to him this time. And then just clobbered by, like, like this wasn't even, like, this wasn't just, like, a regular, like, you know, basketball says idiot ball. This is, like, this idiot ball was, like, the boulder in Indiana Jones. A, right, exactly. Rolling yeah. through the tunnels and, like, right. like just clobbering him and Dioza. Yeah, like, Kane and Dioza's <laughs> idea of a quote-unquote deal with McCreary is, like, first, we're going to give you everything that you want. And then we're going to say, where's our stuff? And then you're going to not give it to us. And then we're going to be surprised. I'm like, guys, the way that you make a deal with a sociopath is not to be like, step one, here's everything. <laughs> like, step two, cross your fingers. He hopes you, he does what you right. he would do. Like when when he tells Abby, he's like, McCreary didn't accept one crew surrender. First, okay, so first of all, plot problem wise, that's the first time it's articulated to us that that's the Kane part of the plan. Right. And that's why I was like, well, yeah. Marcus, like, baby, I could have told you, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but so, so I guess, so, here, so here's like, logistically, here's my issue with it. So they walk on board the ship, right? They surrender, they turn themselves in. We get the like, Kane being like, I won't let this devil in this garden. Like, I won't let Octavia. I won't let Octavia win. Okay, so that implies that they somehow have a plan to keep Octavia from winning, which is like, okay, cool. So that's gonna be something that like, you know, like requires some some smarts. But like the surrender factor of it, it's like, we've already done that. We've already had that story beat. We've already had multiple attempts, you know at gunpoint with poisoned food rations. Like, we've done everything we could do, everybody has, to get Octavia to surrender, and she won't. She keeps doubling down. You know, like, I don't know. Like, at this point, I feel like because Kane was in the cave with Echo, Echo's in contact with Bellamy, I'm assuming we're meant to assume that Kane is up to speed on the plot. Like, I'm assuming that we're meant to know that he, like, that he knows she burned the farm, that he, like, all of these things, like, he knows that she's, like, you know, like, she's unhinged. Like, she's not rational. You can't reason with her. Every day since he left, she's gotten worse. Which is why he doesn't want to let her in. Like, that's supposed to be, like, from what I understand, that's, like, that's the explanation for why Kane is, like, I will burn everything to the ground to keep her out right. of here. So, like, the idea of, the idea of anything being contingent on the idea of her surrendering. Like, first of all, he knows one crew well enough to know they will not surrender if she does not surrender. Like, he must know that. He must know yeah. that. There, so there is no division. Like, if they're marching on starvation rations because she burned their farm, like, 
at the moment that we meet Cain and Gyoza, there is no difference yet between what one crew is doing and what Octavia is doing. They're still following mm-hmm. her lead. So, like, unless he somehow magically divined that exactly what would happen would happen, which is that, like, things would get so bad that one crew would panic and bolt, and then, like, they'd come get the other commander. Like, you know, like, it's like there's no – there's no way he could have predicted the actual ending. What he must have been predicting was that, like, something, 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 hand wave, hand wave, and then one crew will be like, oh, you're right, we come in peace, and that then McCreary will be like, great, come be our farmers and engineers, which which besides being a wild misreading of McCreary and treating McCreary like he's <laughs> Dioza, which is stupid from everyone, but is extra stupid from Dioza. Yeah. <laughs> but like – but it's also – it's like here's why it's so bad. It's Dioza criminally misreading McCreary as Kane is criminally misreading Octavia. And it's like, guys, your whole bond, like your whole relationship thing with each other is based on the shared knowledge you have about your two respective arch villains and like co-strategizing together based on like, I know how he thinks, I know how she thinks, let's figure it out. And so the thing that I don't understand, like the thing that makes me crazy about it and, and is sort of my one kind of nit to pick with the otherwise, I thought, terrific Kane and Vincent scene at the end is like, I can't believe that Kane would come up with a plan that involved as acceptable losses that huge a percentage of all his remaining people on earth. Like when you think about the things that Kane did and the pain and suffering and anguish that he bore and the, you know, living alongside these people, trying to do his best to save them, trying to protect them. Like they're his people too, as much as they ever were Octavia's. And so, so the idea that, that he would, help McCreary sort of like trap them in this bottleneck where there's no escape, where the possibility of slaughter is huge. Hand McCreary all the information he needs to sort of execute that slaughter flawlessly. And then just sort of like hope to God that both Octavia and McCreary do arguably the least likely things you could imagine either of them doing. And then we'll all be okay in the Valley. I'm just like, I don't understand... Like, I I feel so confused by the battle strategy logistics of these sort of ostensibly brilliant pair of tacticians, especially when paired with the sort of the previous McCreary problem that we've talked about before, which is like, I don't understand, like any of the three Griffins could have just quietly killed him. Everyone could have just like, like everyone could just like have let him die and their problems would all be over. So curing him is, you know, is sort of one piece of like question mark but i but also like putting the fate of one crew in mccreary's hands giving him accurate information like not even like a little bit wrong like not even like a little bit like at a disadvantage like just fully yeah, not being, even like, like holding a little piece back to like to give yourself right. a, a you know an upper hand in case things go wrong and you need to take control back right. or whatever like oh like something something that i saw i think floating around on on twitter that also felt like a oh god this could have been a great misdirect and then it sort of wasn't was somebody pointed out that like that there's a gap between 
Clark tells McCreary they'll be here in six or seven days and somebody else is telling Octavia we'll be there in five days. And I was like, ooh, that's great. Okay, so somebody, so maybe part of the plan is like, you're giving McCreary information that's accurate and trustworthy, but you're miscalculating, like the army will be here before he's ready for them. That's right. a great mystery. Yeah. And then that also was a fake yeah. out, you know? Like it was right. like, that was, was, that was like a writing glitch. Like, so, so there's things like that where it's like, I think it bugs me because there's so many other smarter plans that keep everybody more in character that get you to the same plot place you need to get to, which is a slaughter in this valley that forces Octavia to her breaking point. But that could have happened if Kane and Gioza had had a plan and it had gone wrong because of something that Octavia did differently or because a soldier goes rogue and starts shooting too early or something. You know, like there's a million different yeah. ways where you could end up with the plot point where you need to end up at, which is that a bunch of people get killed because Octavia led them to their deaths and McCreary, you know, is totally merciless. Like you could, you could get everybody to that point without making Dioza the battle strategist genius, an idiot who didn't have a second card up her sleeve other than just like, you know, and, and she's reading that scene too, because it's like, she's, it still feels a little bit like, is Gioza playing a game? Because she kind of says, like, no, no, like, Kane's with us, aren't you, Kane? Where I'm kind of like, like, you're acting like you're trying to convince McCreary to trust you, like you're up to shenanigans, but then there was no shenanigans. Like, no shenanigans I mean, it feels It feels really significant to me that they had to lock Dioza away in a cell where she couldn't do anything in this episode. Because, like, if you had Dioza free and walking around, like... There's no possible way she would let this crap go forward. You know what I mean? Like, right, right, like exactly. Like, yeah. Like, of course you have to lock Dioza up where she literally cannot affect anything because if she was around, like, as a character, she would not, you know, like, she would solve this shit. You know, and even right. Kane just sort of, like, I felt like it, like it felt a little bit out of character for me to me for Kane just to kind of, like, you know, McCurry is like, haha, listen, everyone die. And Kane's just like, okay. You know, just kind of like, Oh, I yeah, guess this is the way it's gonna go, and he just kind of like wanders away defeated instead of you know like trying to do anything about it. <laughs> yeah, well, and then when he and then like later with with Vincent, he kind of sort of frames it as like, "Yep, it's terrible. A bunch of three hundred people died, and that'll be on my conscience forever." And I'm just like, right, but like that. <sighs> but it was it was preventable. Like, since when does Kane just kind of throw up his hands and go like, "Oh well." I guess I kind of didn't try at all, but that's that's all I could do. <laughs> and like when you juxtapose that with like with 504 Kane in the fighting pit begging one crew to try to find a way to sort of become the best version of themselves because he's trying to save them. Like he's willing to be yeah. he's gonna use his last moments on Earth before Octavia kills him to try to save these people because they're his people too. Like it just it felt a little bit like I don't feel like there's a coherent character arc for Kane. Like, I feel like I, – I, like, I don't understand how he started there. Like, at the – you know, the sort of nadir of his time in the bunker, and he still had hope and was trying and stuff. And then, like, now – like, I just – I guess I just don't – doesn't quite – I don't quite completely understand, like, why now he's, like, broken to the point of, oh, well, you know, like – I feel like – you know, and, and again, I think sort of in a, in a similar way with like, with the, with the shot caller thing, it's like, I feel like if you extract like two or three individual isolated moments from Kane's story over the whole season, I totally 
I'm completely willing to sort of buy like, here's what the arc is. Like the arc is, you know, he, he has been doing his best for, for a piece to like try to build, like try to build something better, trying to like make one crew the best version of themselves that they can be trying to, you know, save Octavia from herself, trying to, you know, save Abby from herself. He's trying to like, he wants, he wants a better world. Um, and in the flashbacks that we see, like, when he gets broken down to the point where he can't resist that anymore, the cost on his soul of like, I had to do this thing that went so against the kind of person I want to be in the kind of society I want to build, that kind of eroded him. But then, you know, that he meets Gioza, and it begins to feel like, okay, so so his sort of journey, like out of the darkness and into the light is like, here's the leader who will listen to me. Like, here's the leader that yeah. I can persuade to like, this is what, like, don't you agree that this is what the world should be? And Dioza says, yes. Yeah. Like, I'm yeah, with yeah, yeah. you. Yeah. You know, like the kind yeah. of world that you tried to build in the bunker and Octavia wouldn't let you. I will help you build your like shining city on a hill, you know? And so then, then everything that the two of them are doing together is about getting to that place, you know? And that includes things that are, you know, ruthless from time to time, like them sort of being like, if we just don't ransom McCreary back, you know, and like quietly yeah. let Murphy kill him, you know, like then, you know, but but that is in aid of like, McCreary is the threat to peace and everybody else, you know, and Dioza's willing to accept Octavia's surrender. Dioza's willing to like, she will take anybody who wants to defect with like no questions. She will like, like you all like, you know, even if you were our enemy, like we want to try to keep the human race alive, you can all live here. The only other moment that feels sort of jarring in that, that, that pulls away from how I think pretty neatly that arc has lined up is that moment where he tells Dioza basically like, you know, like, why don't you just bump off a couple of these people? And I'm like, whoa, that, mm, that's kind of, yeah. you know, yeah. um, but so, but so that's kind of, again, I was like, I'm going to kind of gloss past that because that doesn't track with anything that just happened or happens later. But then we get here. And for this to happen the way we watch it happen, it's like either it never occurred to Kane or Diosa that McCreary would fail to accept one crew surrender, which is a crazy thing not to have figured out. Right. Or, or Kane was sort of like, well, you know, like the cost of these people's lives in order to get, you know, it's like, like either he didn't know those people were going to get killed or he felt like those were, acceptable losses to get the end point that he wanted. And I'm so uncomfortable with sort of like either of those options. Yeah. That I that I feel like, like, again, it's like, it's the McCreary problem. Like, why yeah. does anybody trust McCreary? Why do people keep making deals with him? Why does anybody extend him the benefit of the doubt? Why does anybody with a chance to kill him not take it? Like, yeah. when you've distilled all the chaos and all of the crises and all of the sort of suffering and all of the the whole march to war – of this entire season can be like laid at the feet of two individual people. And I think the thing that makes me nuts that, that I felt like could and should have been Kane and Dioza's plan. And I was really salty that it wasn't is like this war is preventable by just taking out two people. That's all you have to do. And you have people on both sides of those lines who would help you take out those two people. Yep. That's all it would take is you just need to yep. like throw 
Octavia and McCreary in the trunk of your car and drive out of town and everybody else will be like, cool. Okay. So like, we're all going to share shallow Valley. This is our half. This is your half. See you on Friday for the cookout. Like everything's fine, you know? Yep. And so because everything will be fine if they just did that. So they can't do that for like plot reasons. It's not organic though. It's just sort of like, well, we can't do that for plot reasons because we have to get to this war. But like, there's not actually, like, it doesn't make sense for any of the characters who have there's to There's no not real do reason things. for it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it feels like in a, in a season that like overall, what I've really liked about it is that character and relationship has been driving the plot and the action. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This was a, a rare, monstrous misstep in which for plot reasons, Kanan Dioza and Clark have been required to be so stupid about the kind of person that McCreary is that they are doing things that like, yes, they move the chess pieces around the way I guess you want them for the end game. But at the cost of us being like, these are three of the smartest leadership brains on this entire show. And like the only person who is like, uh, no, we should absolutely kill him is like Abby and Maddie. Yeah, right. And then even Abby was just kind of like, well, now that I'm sober, I guess I'll just cure him then. Yeah, like, like we never, like, she she <laughs> didn't want to do it. And then Clark, I guess, talked her into it. And we never saw that conversation, which might have helped. Like, there's just, like, massive plot holes in Yeah, like, all Clark's reasoning is, like, is, like, well, we have to stick with him because otherwise you'll die. And I'm just, like, again. Will you, though? Really? Will you really? Like, I'm, I'm not at all clear that that's. That, that I'm not convinced that that's true. <laughs> it's like, like Maddie, my child, the safest place in the world for us to be is as close to Paxton Graveyard McCreary as possible. <laughs> it's just not an argument that I buy. And on no, Dioza's part, I feel like Dioza's saying, hey, the secret to peace is to let McCreary have the chance to slaughter a bunch of people and then hope he won't take it. Like, again. Yeah, yeah, yeah like... Uh, I don't, like, mm, (laughs) question. So what I'm hoping is that maybe in the next episode, when, you know, with Clark headed to the ship, that she will bump into Dioza, free her. They'll be like, hey, so yeah, we both were like real dumb last episode, right? Right. Yeah. Anyway, let's kill McCreary. Yeah, right. And then somebody will finally fucking kill McCreary. (laughs) So, so yeah, so that, so that part of it in terms of like everyone temporarily being required for plot reasons to forget everything McCreary's ever done, like a, a villain whose primary characteristic is being violently unpredictable. Right. And then being like, yeah. I bet he'll do this. And I'm like, mm, will he? You know what? Like- I think this time, I think this time he'll do the right thing just because it's the right thing. Fatherhood has not softened him like you all seem to wish that it would have. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, not so much. So the McCreary problem is, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that in the next episode, now that everyone's kind of like back on the same team that that is dealt with better, but it was really like... It just like it made me so sad for Kane and so confused by Dioza that everyone yeah. was just sort of like <laughs> casually strolling into like yeah. the most obvious of traps, you know. It feels like a, a really big misstep that the entire setup for their endgame relied on three characters just like getting clobbered by the idiot ball for like right. entire episodes in a row. Doing something that they'd never do. Yeah. Like, if, if the only way you can get to your end game is by, like, well, and then they just make this inexplicable decision for reasons that we won't explain that make zero sense and actually make them look really dumb. Like, that's, 
not great. <laughs> I think the reason that it gets under my skin on this sort of primal level is just because I feel like just like watching the episode, you know, you're like in 30 seconds – you could spin off half a dozen different variants on this scenario that didn't require anyone to be quite so stupid, where uh-huh. where what happens is that then there's a double cross, or then Octavia does something unpredictable, or suddenly like, or like Octavia not trusting the intel coming from Echo, you know, at the last minute. Yeah. Or a gunner going to the wrong place. Like there are ways where like the unpredictability of human behavior. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. There's a lot of ways you can get to the same point that just wouldn't... Force characters who should know better to inexplicably not know better at like a key moment. And then having to, and then to having to like shove Dioza in a cell for an episode so she's not right. able to do anything about it. And then have Kane just kind of like wander off and be like mopey about how things suck. Right. And it's like they suck because like this is a thing like But you like like you choose this moment to give up Kane six years in the bunker and you like didn't lose that flame of hope and you lose use your what you thought it was like one of your dying breaths to try to turn people around and now you're like guess that's it all I can do. I'm just gonna give yeah. up now. Like really? Like th- that does not that's not Kane. Yeah. You know, like so And I and I think the thing about it that feels jarring, and again, this is like I think it's symptomatic of the thing that we talk about sometimes where the show's kind of like out of sight, out of mind problem, where it's like, yeah, Kane, Kane shifted structurally from a story that was about Octavia and one crew into a story that was about Dioza. So yeah. to the narrative now, like Dioza is the leader to whom he is loyal. And so what the narrative has presented to us is a world where Kane would rather help Dioza save her people, then him save his own people. Yeah. Because, like, like their plan essentially, you know, helps Allegius get through with fewer casualties on Allegius's side. Yes, and I right. think that that's a place where, again, like, I think there's unexamined ramifications of having Cain more or less sort of sell out a- – his own people, like not just Octavia, the individual who got them there, but all the people, all, like everyone Everybody who died in that he valley, knew. he knows them all, yeah. you know? Yeah. So I think that we, I think we were not meant to see that as him, not just him choosing leader A over leader B. Like, like if it was just like, I choose to ally myself with McCreary over Octavia, that's his own thing. But it feels like how we're supposed to interpret it is like, I'm choosing to like definitely save your people over hoping that you then save my people instead of trying to find a way to just sort of like cut the head off both snakes, which would have been a much more efficient solution. So, yeah. So that, so that aside, I actually really, really loved the, the sort of the three other cabbie scenes in the episode. There's the Clark and Maddie, um, or Clark and Abby and Maddie, scene which was like hit or miss like i was the the sort of the clark and maddie of it all i was a little bit like we talked about kind of but the clark and abby stuff i think you know while i'm tired of abby giving people advice that they then interpret to being like abby told me to be as violent as possible and i'm like that's not what abby said (laughs) (laughs) once again as with last week that's not what abby said abby did not mean that (laughs) abby did not mean torture your child abby did not mean shoot them to get them to eat food like 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 poor abby like everyone keeps misinterpreting her and it's just like that's not what you said. That's not what you said. But anyway, but what I <laughs> what I liked about that, besides us just getting like 
a real moment of mom-daughter intimacy between the two of them that we haven't had in so long, which I just, mm-hmm. which just felt so needed. And was one of the few things in this story that I, um, or in this episode, that gave Clark an emotional anchor with somebody who wasn't Maddie. So yeah. like, even though it was all kind of like triangulated around Maddie, cause it was like the Griffin ladies, moms and daughters, but like it was about Clark's relationship as a daughter with her mom, which I thought was really, I thought that we needed that, you know, that the, like, mm-hmm. you know, the, and the physical contact, you know, them holding hands. I also think that something that I hope was brought up in order to be dealt with when there's more time to deal with it was sort of, I think the interesting question of like, you know, Clark sort of suspecting like, was the accidental overdose not an accident? And, and Abby yeah. kind of not being sure, which, which, fe- which feels yeah. right, actually, like, which feels very truthful. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, know? for sure. Yeah. Like, just sort of scrambling around taking as many pills as she can take. And it's like, into, like, was it deliberate or not deliberate requires her and the state that she was in to have had a degree of, like, awareness about why she was doing what she was doing that she just didn't have in that moment. Yeah. Or even control over what she was doing. Exactly. You know? like, I, yeah. I, don't, I, I think it kind of, like, speaks to the lack of sort of conscious control over her actions in that moment that I think the, you know, the, that we had sort of, like, felt like – that that episode conveyed, you know, that she was mm-hmm. just kind of like acting on almost automatic instinct at that point. Yes, exactly. Yeah. To the point where like, you know, she doesn't know, she'll never know where kind of like her sort of just instinct to, to, to shove as many in her as she could ended and where the kind of like conscious awareness that that could lead to her death began or if it did. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So I hope that that is brought up as a thing that will be unpacked a little bit more, you know, as part of her kind of her healing, her, you know, her journey over season six, kind of whatever that looks like. The scenes that I felt really very emotional about, but also I think did some good kind of like, you know, thematic work was the Kane and Abby scene and the Kane and and Vincent scene. With Vincent, one thing that I felt like clicked into place really beautifully, a sort of like aha moment watching him in this episode that I, that I think in hindsight has been working kind of right under our noses really beautifully all the way along this season is that like Vincent exists in this narrative to be the human embodiment of Abby's addiction. He serves really very little other plot function. He occasionally interacts with sort of in other Elegia scenes, but like Vincent is in this season for Abby, for Abby's storyline. Abby also like Clark and Octavia, like this is her pivot. This is her definitive, you know, like she goes through detox, but like Dioza told us, you know, like she can detox, but if she hasn't made the choice to let it go for real, then she's just a clean junkie. She's gone through the detox. She's on the mend. This is the moment where we know for certain that she's made the choice to put that away. You know, we watched her destroy the last pill that she kind of had been like holding on to a little bit, you know, and then she comes in and she kills Vincent. And I think what worked about that, you know, I was like as sad as I was to see Vincent die because I've really, I've really been enjoying him, even though it's great. Is it's like, we like him at the beginning because we're supposed to, because that's uh-huh. how this works. You know, like both Vincent and Abby's addiction, like they're helpful at the beginning. 
Vincent is a friend when she needs a friend, when she's isolated from everybody else. He makes her feel better. He listens to her. He helps her with her work. He has the idea about the sonic gun. He's useful. And then she becomes dependent on him. And initially that dependency seems kind of like, it's like, well, okay, like he's, he's definitely a weird, creepy serial killer. But for the moment, he seems to sort of be like in abeyance. So like, it's fine. And then we get the first kind of inkling of danger when like Dioza, you know, who's, very smart and knows Vincent extremely well, says to Abby, like, you took the thorn out of a lion's paw, but he's still a lion. Like, you you think that you have controlled this force. You have not controlled it. At best, it's all sort of like lying in wait. But you haven't changed Vincent. You haven't altered his fundamental nature away from being intrinsically dangerous, just because at the moment, you know, he likes you and he's loyal to you. You know, and then, you know, the more and more isolated... Abby gets, the darker and darker things become. She pushes away Kane. She pushes away Raven. Vincent becomes like all she has. Like Vincent becomes the only character we often sort of in a whole episode would see her meaningfully interacting with, you know, and then after she's kidnapped, essentially, like after she's sort of there, like under, under McCreary as opposed to Dioza, like he becomes the one who's like providing her the pills. And then like it begins to escalate. We see the like increasingly destructive things she's willing to let him do to kind of keep that fix coming until finally she is able to like put it behind her and realize all along you were this dangerous. You know, I think it's really poetic that it's like, you know, Kane had told her it's either the pills or it's me, like you have to make a choice. And so I think it feels right that the way it ends is like, it's because Kane comes back. It's because of the conversation that she has with Kane about sort of like the possibility of hope returning that gets her to jump out the last pill. And it's to save his life that she's willing to, you know, do something that we have seen her do very, very rarely in this show, you know, rarer than a lot of other characters is like intentionally take a life. After that conversation with Vincent about like letting somebody die is different than killing them. She kills Vincent. Mm -hmm. Like she takes Mm -hmm. all that agency. She like, she takes that on Mm -hmm. and it's to save Kane's life. The parallel of that versus the destroying the last pill Like it needed to be a moment where we see her being like, this chapter of my life is done. Like I am like destroying it, you know, and that I thought was really powerful. I think there's also there's a there's a parallel too between the sort of darkest final moment of Abby's uh, addiction being when she prioritized taking pills over stopping Vincent from mm-hmm. killing people. Like, do, like Vincent was literally doing exactly to those other people he was doing to them what he's doing to Kane here. Yeah. And so the, the sort of, like, there's a parallel between Abby emptying out the pill and choosing not to take it and stopping Vincent from, you know, from killing Kane versus when she had been in the grip of that addiction, allowing Vincent to do, to kill those people and that, you know, to sort of like rip their throats out with his teeth while she's taking pills. So there's that, there's that kind of like parallel too. And I think like that reading of Vincent, like, I think it's really brilliant. Like I hadn't thought about it before you mentioned it, but like, as soon as you said it, I was like, oh my God, like that's totally it. Because it makes you go back to the beginning and be like, yeah, this has been the progression, like, the whole time. He seems so genteel, you know? Like, he's so articulate. He doesn't come across as dangerous or, mm-hmm. you know, like, menacing or, like, uncouth in the way that 
the other convicts do. He's very polite and like he wears glasses, you know, he's like very put together and articulate and intelligent and, and all that kind of stuff. And so even the sort of specificity of Abby's addiction to pills, I think there's something in the way that, you know, that Vincent never presents himself as a criminal in the way that we stereotypically understand criminality, that he seems perfectly like put together and like, you know, your basic sort of like milk toasty, you know, like middle manager kind of guy, like respectable, quote unquote, and that that's what allows him to sort of inveigle himself into her life and take it over in that way. I think there's a kind of interesting sort of that's the sort of like dimension of Vincent as allegory for addiction to some to specifically to like painkiller, like prescription painkillers that I think is also really meaningful. And especially as it being like, you know, it's an addiction that began as something that she did genuinely need, you know, like she needed, right. she started taking the pills after Allie as like a legitimate pain management strategy. In the beginning, it was something that she needed. And then she sort of found that she couldn't you know, that it was harder and harder to stop. The dangerous things, the things to be really scared of, don't always present themselves immediately as like marching in there with their giant sonic gun like McCreary. Right. This is a storyline that I'm excited to kind of like watch on and binge and kind of pick up those little clues. Because one of the one of the neat little tricks they've been doing the whole entire time with Vincent is showing that like the people who know him best, like the other Allegius prisoners never cease to find him utterly terrifying. Even as we and Abby kind of start to soften on him a little bit. Yeah. We're like, Oh, I like him. He seems he's yeah. We're like, Oh, Vincent, you know, like (laughs) it's nice to see Abby have a friend, you know, but then like he goes outside to like borrow the gun from the guy and the guy jumps back or like McCreary Mm -hmm. comes in with his his two guards and they're like, whoa, Vincent's here. Like nobody likes him. Nobody wants to make eye contact with him. Like the, these big muscled, beefy, hardened, tattooed criminals are palpably physically scared of Vincent. And we get that every time he's in the room with anybody who is an Abby, we see that they see him differently than Abby does, you know, and, and Dio's is the one who kind of makes that textual, but it's there in the background every time you see him with any of the other criminals. And I think that that little kind of running detail of everybody who isn't Abby, who isn't in the grip of this addiction, can see clearly who he is. And she doesn't because he's fulfilling a need, you know, like he's giving her something. And we also don't see it because we're seeing it more sort of from Abby's perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that was handled really deftly. And I think it kind of makes textual that like all along, Vincent has convinced Abby that he's there to help Abby, but Vincent is doing something that he needs for himself. Mm-hmm. He likes having Abby be dependent on him and unable to function without him and needing him, you know? And and I think it's nice that it isn't coded in a way that sexualized, which I appreciate. I think a lesser show could have made it sort of like really pervy. Yeah. Like Vincent could have been like watching Kane and Abby have sex. And then it could have been like a way more, like there's so many ways it could have been more gross. And they handled it really nicely, which is it becomes about like, it ties back to the thing that he says to her about, I know what it feels like to need something. Like he sees them as like kindred spirits. So he needs to have somebody who like he gets what he needs and she gets what she needs, but they have this like thing in common. I had a very strong emotional reaction to that scene between, between Vincent and Kane in terms of sort of what it articulates about like 
person who loves Abby, person who claims to care about Abby, and this kind of incompatible collision of what they both want for her, you know, the kind of life they want to have. And I think the reason that it kind of struck me was it mirrored like experiences that I've had in my own life with like, uh, you know, well, I guess I was thinking, I was like, do I want to say his name on the podcast? I don't really care. So my friend Hilberto, like a friend of mine, Erin's <laughs> laughing because she's like, knows this whole story. But a uh, um, man I used to be very, very close friends with several years ago that I met very shortly after my mom had died and very shortly after he had ended an extremely significant long-term relationship. So we were kind of like, we were like both a mess. And he was a really dark person. And I was in a place in my life that was very dark. And we kind of like glommed on to each other in this like dark and toxic and codependent way in this very poisonous, but very addictive codependent friendship that lasted for many, many years. And the piece that was the most difficult about it that I remember that makes that a time in my life that it really is painful to look back on is feeling like all along, I knew I don't want this dark place that I'm in to last forever. Like, I feel like this is a moment that I'm in, like a horrible thing has happened to me and I'm in a lot of pain, but I always knew, like, I want to get free of that. I want there to be a time in my life where this dark place that I'm in is over. And the thing that made that difficult was that he did not want to get better. He did not want that for himself. He wanted me to stay in the dark place with him so he had company down there. I felt like I was not allowed to take any steps towards the light without being like punished so badly and and pulled back in. And it took such a long time to sort of break out of that and an even longer time to kind of heal emotionally from like how bleak and dark that part of my life had been for such a long time. Even though, you know, like Vincent is this sort of like larger than life character and even though so much of his role in the story is allegorical, like it is this profoundly real thing that it's like some people do not want to get better. Like some people have embraced their demons. They like it down there. They like being in that place. And what they want is company. What they want is you down in this shit with them. So they aren't alone, but also they don't have to change. Yeah. Yeah. And so Vincent, I think what in the end, what makes him scary, what makes him dangerous isn't just the obvious thing. It isn't just the fact that he's a murderer. It's the fact that he's so persuasive and he's so charming, you know, which was the thing with Hilberto too. Like he was, he could be so funny and so kind and so charming. And I was so crazy about him. And, and I felt like we had this like great connection. I could sort of skip past the bad stuff because there wasn't like enough good stuff that I felt like I can save you. Like I can bring us back both up to the light together. And he was just like, no, we're both staying here in this shit. Mm hmm. Watching that confrontation between Vincent and Kane, it just like hit me like so hard. And I'm, and it like, and I feel like emotional even like thinking about it because it's like, like this is, this is like the reality of like the gap between I claim to care about you, but it's because I need to feel like there are other people in the world who are like me versus I care about you and I want what's best for you. I want you to have the life that you deserve to have. You know, and Kane also, like every other character who, you know, who isn't Abby, sort of immediately sniffing out like this guy is trouble and he's full of shit, you know, and he's dangerous. But basically saying like, if you claim to care about her on any level, then what you should want is for her to like, to stay clean, to like, 
be free of this thing and to have a better life. And Vincent doesn't want that. Vincent wants Abby to stay right where she is so he can keep bringing her her pills so he can be her person. Like he can be the one person that she's dependent on. And Kane is a threat, you know, not in any, you know, and again, like nicely handled, like not in any kind of a like sexual jealousy way, but like Kane is a threat because Kane is the person who represents the thing that Abby lost and wants back, you know, like the kind of relationship and the kind of life that she wants to have, the addiction got in the way of. And she's ready to put this behind her, to begin to move forward, you know, to begin to reforge those relationships again. It's already starting like with Clark and all of these other people, but Kane especially are profound threats to the version of Abby that he needs to serve, like to sort of satiate his own hunger, his own needs. You know, and he tries it on Kane too, where he's like, it's easier not having a conscience. You should try it. Being this sort of like, you know, devil on everybody's shoulder, being like, it's so much easier to just embrace the fact that we are all monsters. Abby is a monster. You are a monster. I'm a monster. Why are you torturing yourself caring about the lives that you've taken? I kill people. You kill people. We're the same. Like, why beat yourself up about it? You know? <laughs> And I think that, like, the McCreary problem aside in this episode, I think having somebody look at Marcus Kane and be like, so you realize you're a murderer, right? It's like hitting <laughs> him in, like, his deepest, like, wound, yeah. you know? Like, yeah, it's, yeah, like yeah. it's the most – it's the meanest thing you could possibly say to that <laughs> poor man. And And yet, like – Vincent tries to use that as like a mechanism of temptation and it doesn't work on Kane the way it hasn't worked on anybody else who isn't Abby, who isn't in the grips of this kind of demon that he can use to like make himself useful and make himself a part of her life and then he's got a partner. It's a sort of haunting, terrifying vision of like Vincent's dream future where like Abby stays a captive in, you know, the Lich's camp forever, you know, and he keeps bringing her pills and being her best friend and her only meaningful relationship because he's the one that has the drugs. And then he gets to feel like, you know, we are kindred spirits and he has somebody who he feels understands him and that he can understand. He thinks that's a perfectly satisfactory ending for both of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the true horror story of Vincent, I think, is that more than it is the like, ripping out people's, you know, jugulars with his teeth. It's this idea that, like, everyone would be better off if we just stopped valuing other human lives, you know, and everything would be better off if you just sort of stayed down here in the dark with me. You know, I was just like, Jesus Christ. Like, this is <laughs> – like, it was so – like, but it just, like, it just hit me in that place where I was like – I've been there. Like, I've been in that yeah, moment. Like, yeah, I yeah. like I feel, I'm just like, I'm feeling it so viscerally. And so when Abby comes in and electrocutes him, both to save Cain and also to end that story, to remove that possibility of that being a version of herself she's going to revert back to, was like so powerful to me. Not just because it means that she's sort of like, I'm closing the door on this addiction. Like I am, I am making the choice. I am taking the steps. I am moving forward. But because it's like, it says something about taking that step back towards the light. She slayed the demon, you know? So I think that was really, it was a very grim end for a character that up until this episode I was really enjoying. <laughs> but I also, but I like that that was, you know, 
it was a place where I sort of, re- like, you get to the end and you realize you've been hoodwinked, but, like, in a cool way, you know, in a, like, oh, I didn't realize that, like, all along, like, Vincent was playing all of us. The narrative was playing all of us. And I really liked that. I was like, oh, this yeah. is a twist, you know? Yeah, I like that, too. So, unfortunately, I feel bad stopping before we get to the cabbie stuff. Let's just, okay, so really, really quick, like, three minutes quick. So the previous scene, the scene that happens before the Vincent stuff, where we get to have that moment where they reconnect even a little bit, even though it's like, it's very, it's very tense. He's still kind of carrying the weight of this, all this stuff that's happened. They're still, I think, not quite sure, like, where we at with each other, which, which also felt honest, which I appreciated. Like, that felt like a realistic place sort of for them, for them to be. You know, I like that there was a little bit of a reach out moment and Kane being so, like, fatigued of trying to sort of choose between the lesser of two evils. I'm hoping kind of tease up what his arc is going to be, I think, over the next, for the next episode or for the next season two. And this sort of reiterating that like these things that they keep saying to each other, first we survive, then we find our humanity again, like that those things have sort of, they've kind of ceased to have any real meaning. Yeah, they've like, they've, they've run their course. Yeah, like they've done this so many times and it keeps ending. And this is the kind of what we were talking about before about like the more kind of nihilist version of the show that we were afraid we were going to get after 5.11. This is that, like, this is that moment of like, we keep trying the same things that keep not working you know, and so I think Abby ending with like, we'll get there, you know, and then she dumps out the last pill. It's like the teeniest, tiniest little spark of hope, you know, but it's there, but it's real. It's something. And it's a we, like they're a unit again. Yeah. And, and then the very last moment in the like, you know, the non-deathbed, deathbed scene, the like, thank God Ian confirmed to the TCAs today that he's totally back for next season. <laughs> and yes. like, and assuaged oh, that panic because that was, we had a, those are, those are rough night. I never again want to get a text from Aaron that begins, we're sure Ian's coming back next season, right? Because I was like, I haven't seen it yet. Oh my God, holy shit. I was so upset. But but actually, but what I loved about that was I think having him almost die, having him believe that he's dying, you know, letting him say the thing that he needs to say, letting her know, like, that he knew about what happened in the bunker. Yeah. You know, he knew, like, yeah. I, the thing that I was so afraid of, like, I was so stressed about, like, like, once the script of screen came out and it was clear that they intended it textually to be that, like, he didn't know and she's been beating herself up over that. I was like, if they save that reveal for, like, the middle of season six after they've already begun healing and then Octavia drops a bombshell and she's like, by the way, you know, and then it, like, fractures things again after they've already begun to mend, I was going to be furious. But actually, I think saving it from the flashbacks to reveal it here so that, like, you know, with his, what he thinks is his dying breath, he can take off of her shoulders the guilt and pain and burden of her fear that if he knew this, that he would hate her. Like, what that means is that, like, all along, everything that happened after, that his love for her, you know, the fact that he was willing to die for her, he was willing to steal drugs for her, he was willing to walk through fire for her, all of the things that he did and said, all of that happened in the context of knowing what had happened and that he loved her anyway. Yes. And that he didn't hold it against her and that he had forgiven her that for that long time ago. I yeah. think that also feels to me like a key part of Abby's healing. Yes, I agree. Yep. She got to hear him say, I forgive you. But like you said, also knowing like he knew that all along and it didn't change the fact that he loved you. You know, like he never stopped loving you knowing that. He never stopped loving you through your addiction, you know, like. Yeah, yeah. She doesn't have to like win him back yeah. now that he knows this bad thing that she did. It's yeah. like it was always there. And still his love for her was stronger than recrimination for that. Exactly. You know? Yes, yes. I'm very happy with that. And next week, I promise we will start with Cabby. 
so we don't <laughs> squeeze it at the end. We also neglected Mamori too, and I want we got to work that ah, in next damn week it. too. Yes. Yeah. Okay. The all of the all of Murphy's moments with his gun were hilarious and delightful. Oh my god. Yes. And obviously, he's been watching a lot of 20th century movies while he was on yes, the <laughs> <laughs> which just felt so right. Yeah, it really does. I really like like Murphy in his sort of like self-imposed exile, just watching nothing but like 80s and 90s action films. Feels yep. Completely I was like, correct. all of this checks out. Yep. Yeah. Or 70s. I guess that was Scarface. That's 70s. But anyway, yeah. whatever. <laughs> so now we have wrapped up. And we'll be back next week for Damocles Part 2. The finale. finale. We made it. We, we made got one it. more meditation this season, y'all. <laughs> <Woo>. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Good night. Bye. <laughs> See you next week. Bye.